Hi, I'm Aerospace Executive, Podcast Enthusiast, and Egomaniac, Tola Martz. And if there's one thing I've learned from the Netflix historical drama, The Crown, it's that you can say whatever you want in a historical drama, as long as it doesn't directly contradict demonstrable facts, and it sounds vaguely plausible to the audience. In that spirit, we here at the Monty Hall Effect podcast players give you the bit. sure is nice to be a big-time Hollywood producer. I, too, am very happy to be a big-time Hollywood producer, dining with you here at the chic Hollywood restaurant in the year 2014. But I have a problem. Oh, no. What is it? Yes, I've made a movie. It's called Interstellar. That doesn't sound like a problem. Would you care for some cocaine? Oh, gosh, thanks, but no. Your loss. You were saying? Well, I got a prestige director, I spent a pile of money, but a lot of reviewers found it pretentious and talky and slow. Uh, was Christopher Nolan, by any chance, the prestige director that you hired? Why, yes. How did you know? Uh, lucky guess. Uh, so, so, so what's the problem? I need a distraction. I need something to distract the critics and the industry away from the problems of this film. I figure the way to do it is to have someone else direct a film that's even more pretentious, more talky, and more slow. Then, when people think of failed prestige science fiction films, they won't think of Interstellar. Ah, how, how pretentious. Have you ever read the I Ching? Uh, just the Cliff's Notes. So take that, add a bunch of Leo Buscaglia, throw in a dollop of Norman Vincent Peale, blend it all up for 60 seconds on puree, and sort of pour the words out onto a script. Hmm, that is pretentious. Well, I'm in quite the pickle. And you want me to produce this nightmare? Yes, I want you to call it Ad Astra. Wow, I am literally ill with the pretentiousness. And you think this will help your predicament? I think if you do it right, people will look back at my film and consider it a marvel of restraint and efficiency. And why on earth would I sully my good name on such a project? Because I'm ready to courier over a barrel of cocaine and a Greyhound bus full of hookers to your place up in Laurel Canyon. Ah, well, you know me well. Um, but I do need one more thing. A what? Well, I've got this idea for a reality TV show on the rise and fall of Donald Trump. Who? who? The, that New York developer who used to sell steaks with his name on him and stuff. Isn't, isn't he dead? No, uh, still around. Uh, he has that show where he pretends to be a big shot and says you're fired when he pretends to fire pretend employees. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that guy. Yeah, well, I think it'd be hilarious to have him try and fail to run for president. Uh, sort of the failure cherry on top of the failure ice cream sundae of his career. Well, how can I help? You know his guys over at CAA. Uh, put in a good word. That plus the hookers and blow, and I'm in. I mean, isn't it dangerous to meddle in the primal forces of, like, democracy and self-government and stuff? Nah, Jeb Bush has this thing in the bag. Oh, right. Doesn't he have, like, $100 million already in the bank? And he's the, he's the smart Bush, right? He's been governor of a big and complicated state like Florida? Exactly. What could go wrong? And scene.
Welcome to the Monty Hall Effect. I'm your host, Tim Lloyd. And I'm your host, Tola Martz. Well, Interstellar. First of all, welcome back. It's been, uh, I guess, so people have gotten our last podcast after the summer, but you and I actually took the summer off uh, to sweat and uh, spend time with our children. Uh, yes. And uh, to watch the children sweat and mostly keep them from, from melting in uh, heat waves here in, in Washington State. Somehow we survived and uh, we're back with the movie that we threatened to do uh, when, we, when we last spoke. Uh, we were called, as good as our word. Yeah. Uh, so it is. Um, so yeah, our movie today is 2014's epic and by epic, I mean it's really long. Interstellar, uh, which was uh, written by Jonathan Nolan and Christopher Nolan and directed by Christopher Nolan, uh, also known as, as the guy who ruined all the Batman movies um, and made people sick in IMAX uh, with... Um, what was the one that he made people sick in IMAX? Uh, I didn't about? know he made people sick in IMAX. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Inception, with all the falling oh. cities and stuff. Did people get sick in Inception? I didn't know that. I don't know. That just seems like a sort of thing that would happen. So my charming bride, when you talk about folding cities, um, she sat through Interstellar again with me this week. And she pointed out the curveback city motif that has become a thing with Nolan, right? And she points out that you get it. Uh, well, late in the movie, I won't, I, I, I won't, I, we'll get to where we get to it. But he, but he points out the whole uh, curved back city thing is, is actually like a, uh, a motif now of uh, his, of Nolan's, which is, which is interesting. I don't know. Did he, did he ruin the Batman movies? I feel like the one with the Joker was awesome. But then the third one was a, a total visit to crazy town. Yeah, I don't know. I, um, I mean, no, no Batman movie really lives up uh, to the amazingness of Lego Batman, uh, which is canonically the best Batman movie. Um, but uh, no, I don't know. I'm not a, not a fan of the Nolan Batmans. Mm. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I think we're going to wind up talking about today is just how hard of a time Nolan has. I feel like he. What happens is he gets an idea. He he lives in terms of shots, right? He's got an idea for a shot, and so everything else kind of bends around it, much like how cities fold in upon themselves. And so you just get things like, uh, just to briefly segue over to Batman for a second, um, you know, you he wanted to get a shot of the police emerging from the from the subways and underground stuffs uh, to to take on. Uh, Bane's forces. And so he had them live, I guess, all of them. All of them got sent underground uh, for a thing. And they were all, and then they were all trapped underground. All of them, the entire, I guess, 60,000. Well, if Gotham's like New York City, it's about 60,000 police. They're all, they're all down there trapped uh, for like months. And, and then they're not. And it's just this sort of crazy town um, bending of the rules of physics and time and space. Because he wanted to set up that iconic shot, right, of the police marching down Gotham's, you know, main drag to take on Bane's forces. And I feel like this movie has that, too. You know, we're going to talk a lot uh, about a lot of different scenes in this film. And I just feel like a lot of things are played fast and loose so that he can get these iconic shots, which, when you are trying to make a scientifically accurate film, uh, is a a real conundrum. (laughs) 
well, I think as this movie shows, you can do pretty much anything with uh, bending of, of time and space and the laws of physics, uh, so long as you have Michael Caine reading Dylan Thomas uh, at, uh, at frequent intervals. Over and over. Yes, the two things uh, that were said the most in this film, uh, Dr. Mann, he was the best of us. And uh, let us not go gently into that long night, or however exactly it goes. Yes. Oh, boy. Yes, we certain Dylan Thomas. Uh, true story. friend of mine uh, named her son Dylan, uh, middle name Thomas. And I said, oh, are you a fan of the poet? And she said, who? And I'm like, ah, you named your son, uh, happens to have the same first uh, and middle name of a uh, poet who uh, I believe died of alcoholism. Did he not? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, you know, he's a romantic poet uh, from Wales. So as a, as a Welshman, I can say that's probably likely. <laughs> right. He is one of your national heroes, after all. Exactly. All right, so uh, do you want to do you want to get us going on this or how should we how should we dig in to Interstellar? Oh, sure. So um, so like like some of these movies uh, where I uh, that I haven't seen before we watch it. Uh, I, I kind of went into this as cold as I could. Um, so I sort of vaguely remembered a bunch of hype around this movie uh, when it came out in 2014. I didn't see it at the time, and I watched it for the very first time at about midnight last night. Uh, so, <laughs> okay. so I'm like, all right, giant sci-fi epic, space travel and, and love and, and time travel and whatever else. And so this, this beautiful, mind-bending sci-fi epic opens, and it's literally... Ken Burns, the Dust Bowl. Yep. Uh, and like the interviews are like actually taken from the Ken Burns documentary, The Dust Bowl, uh, with a an interspersed interview with uh, the amazing Ellen Burstyn, uh, talking about her father being a farmer, mm-hmm. uh, not the astronaut farmer because that's a different movie, uh, but right. but an astronaut who's become a farmer. Um, I guess to sort of summarize, like what has happened to the earth and why we're watching Ken Burns right now is that the Dust Bowl is back. It's the year 2067. There's a blight of some kind that's just destroying all of agriculture on the planet. And uh, the most important thing in the world right now is farming because we need all the farmers to farm and people who aren't farmers to also become farmers because that's the only way we're all going to survive is to make more and more food as all the different crops start dying off. And, and most people died, right? They said something about, oh, there used to be like six billion people on the planet, right? Yeah, weren't so those the days? That, so lots of bad things happened. And I have to say, um, uh, depressing dystopias are particularly depressing right at the moment. Um, without <laughs> without making this episode particularly political, uh, I'll just say that, you know, we're, we're living in a certain kind of dystopia right at the moment. We'll just let, we'll just, we'll leave it non-political and just say COVID related. It's been a long 18 months. And, and so seeing a dystopia now bums me out a lot more than dystopia movies did five years ago because it's just been such a rough couple of years. And I found this movie on that level bummed me out a little bit to watch. Yeah, and you know they're they're talking about how they gotta you know, walk around with cloth over their mouth when they go outside. And uh, can you and, imagine? <laughs> can you imagine having to live like that? Gosh, gosh, that'd be a thing. <sighs> um, so I I don't know. I I, I kind of want to speed through some of this. Uh, like first forty five minutes of the movie, I think a is... long. It takes them a long time to get off world, right? But but I, I wouldn't entirely skip through it because the stuff with the kids, I think is important. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's this whole argument that Nolan is actually um, quite a small C conservative 
uh, writer and 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 filmmaker. You know, the scene in the Batman uh, uh, Joker movie where he rigs all the cameras up and you know records everybody in the whole city to get the Joker is is a is it makes a sort of interesting political point, right? And he does it again in this movie. He has the teachers say that the moon landings were faked, you know, blah blah blah, <laughs> this kind of stuff. I mean, he's not um, he's like Zemeckis in that way. Zemeckis's films are um, when you really start looking at what he says, like in Forrest Gump and some of these movies, is really really quite conservative again, small c conservative. And there's a whole bunch of that in the first forty five minutes. You know, humans have lost their most Mojo, right? We've, yeah. we've lost our mojo, and we can't we can't dream big anymore. We used to dream big, and now we don't. But there but there is stuff with the kids, right? With both kids, and I was stunned to realize uh, who plays his son. Why it's Paul Atreides himself? <laughs> That's right. Tim, Tim, That's Timothy, right. Timothy, how do you pronounce it? Timothy Chalamet, uh, right? Uh, yeah, and uh, I just had to look this up. Uh, so yeah, so his son who is named Tom, something like that. I believe I so. Of, yep. Sort of forgot him. Um, and uh, daughter Murphy uh, or Murph, played Murph. by Mackenzie Foy, previously known as the baby from Twilight. Oh right. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The yeah. Right. Not the 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 daughter, the hybrid daughter, or the little yeah. girl that they go to. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. So you know, claim to fame. Um. Nice. I, I, I will say that that uh, for a movie that ages people throughout the film, I, I kind of like the way that they took the approach of you know, especially going from uh, middle age Murphy to uh, elderly Murphy, that they actually changed actors, uh, going from mm-hmm. in this case Jessica Chastain to uh, Ellen Burstyn, rather than trying to you know put a bunch of old person makeup on Jessica Chastain. Especially since uh, Murphy is supposed to age about a hundred years, right? Yeah, Between when yeah. we see her as a young woman and when we see her as an, as an older woman, but be, I, yeah. I really so on multiple viewings, I found both the stuff with the son and the daughter, uh, particularly with the son, both more touching and more frustrating. Mm. I, I really feel like the son as a character, uh, Tom is his is his name. Uh, is is a very interesting character, and the dad's relationship with the son is is more touching than I remembered from the first time I saw it. But then the son does some stuff late in the movie that just comes out of left field again, because I think Nolan has an had an idea for a scene that he wanted to shoot, and it just required him to ret- essentially retcon characters uh, from his own movie, which is a which is a bizarre choice. But so yeah, we can we can skip forward um, a lot of those forty five minutes. Uh, they find they find the remnants of NASA, which has been secretly. Uh, well, I'll let. Yeah, I, I guess yeah. One maybe one or two pieces that that jumped out at me from that first segment of the film. Uh, the the first is in in that scene where uh, he's talking with Murph's teacher about uh, how you know she she's mad at Murph for bringing in this propaganda book that explains that we actually landed on the moon uh, and, and that it wasn't in fact faked. Um, the, the teacher or the principal or somebody says something along the lines of, you know, we don't need more engineers, we need farmers. Uh, which, you know, as an, as an engineer, first of all, I was insulted, um, which I think is kind of part of the point of that. Uh, but it doesn't make any sense. Right? It, it, you know, the, the earth is dying, there's a blight, there's uh, you know, we have to put as much effort into farming as possible. It would it would seem like one of the obvious things to do is to have more 
engineers, particularly, you know, uh, biological engineers and, and people working on increasing crop crop yields and fighting this blight and, you know... Agronomists, making... perhaps, yeah, sure, would be nice. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, the world could use more agronomists at the point where, you know, they say, well, the we've just had the last crop of okra that we're ever going to have, and, you know, basically, like, the only thing that's left is corn. There, there was this whole thing in there. Again, Nolan is, like, your friend who got a liberal arts degree and you try to talk to them about science and you realize they don't really understand science. You know, this whole thing about everything, something having to do with nitrogen, which like, uh, if you understand chemistry, like biatomic nitrogen, you know, and uh, N2 is like essentially the lowest energy state you can get of nitrogen. So like the air is already like nitrogen doesn't go anywhere. Once it's gaseous nitrogen, there's really, I mean, you can fix it uh, chemically, but it's not like I don't know. It's just the chemistry of it just didn't make any sense to me at all. It was just a a, a weird word salad answer to why there was problems on the earth. I, I wrote this down because it was so confusing, and I, what I wrote down was that the blight breathes nitrogen, and because right. of that, soon there won't be enough air for people to breathe, which is not how anything works at all. Right. Right. It's not how chemistry works. It's not how the air works. The air is 70%, 78% nitrogen. Yeah, it's, the whole thing was just, it was just a MacGuffin, as they say, right? The, sure. The, sure. the blade is just a MacGuffin. It's the, we have to, we have to get off our butts and, uh, uh, but, but, I mean, you point out something that's interesting, right? Which is the, everybody's solution is to get off the planet, right? The solution isn't to fix the planet. It's very interesting because you and I have a friend who just released a book uh, where he's talking about, you know, using lots of cool technology to solve the problems that we have here on the earth. But this book or this movie goes in the exact opposite direction, right? Nope. The solution is to get out. We've uh, messed it up beyond all retrieval and we just have to get off world. Yep. Um, and I think okay. there's, there's, a, there's a conversation on the porch where... Uh, Coop is talking to his father-in-law, played by the awesome John Lithgow, and there's something to the... I mean, he says something like the planet's pushing us out, or something like that. I mean, it's just a really weird anthropomorphizing, and... Whatever. So. So, uh... So, yes. Um, But it's not all just uh, dust storms and fake moon landings. Uh, We do see that there is a poltergeist in Murph's room um, and it does stuff like knocks books off of the bookshelf um, a beautiful enormous bookshelf taking up the entire wall of her bedroom I'm very jealous um, uh, we happening. have a bookshelf like that in our bedroom uh, my mom's old bookshelves from her house uh, nice. we have 12, 12 linear feet of bookshelves like that that is a proper bookshelf uh, but you don't have uh, I guess spoilers for later you don't have Matthew McConaughey hiding behind it in uh, multi-dimensional space do you not as far as as we know okay okay that's good uh, you might need insurance for something like that uh, so yeah so we got books falling off of the the bookshelf uh, Murph is seeing maybe there might be some kind of pattern in it um, she's she's trying to decode it and uh, one day they come into the room and there are lines of dust on the floor in a strange pattern and they realize dun 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 it is quote unquote binary coordinates as I think how sure. it was described which okay whatever so they follow the binary coordinates um, drive out into the middle of the nowhere and it happens to be somewhere close to where they live which uh, I assume is in Colorado somewhere because they find a 
chain link fence with a NORAD sign on it. I thought it was hilarious that the cor- they, they, they look up the coordinates on a map and it's just some mountain someplace. And it doesn't like show anywhere near NORAD. But yes, in fact, there it turns out that NASA is hiding out in NORAD, uh, that the government has still been funding NASA, but in secret. It's in secret, uh, because, yes. Because the people nowadays wouldn't want to fund such a thing. No, no, because, uh, again, the, everybody knows that the moon landings are faked and uh, engineers are dumb because we need farmers. Uh, so right. down inside this mountain, we find uh, not just NASA, but uh, Anne Hathaway and Michael Caine and Topher Grace and various other scientists that have been hiding down here doing something or other. There's this really West Bentley, weird... West Bentley from and the... West Bentley. Uh... Uh, what was that movie with the uh, oh, uh, American Beauty, right? Yes, Wes Bentley, yes. Last seen uh, filming a uh, plastic bag floating in the wind um, and being creepy in, in that movie. And, I'm not uh, sure it's possible for Wes Bentley not to be at least a little bit creepy. He's a little bit always, creepy in this film, too. Looks, it's just yeah. kind of his, his motif. He's got a little bit of a, oh, Christopher Walken. I think mm. a little bit of a Christopher mm. Walken affect. Yeah. So down so, here so we, find, we find NASA, and um, it turns out that they are building a spaceship um, inside their mountain place, and they're going to use that spaceship to go to a wormhole that they found orbiting Saturn that was put there by aliens, probably, and. Uh, yeah, and they call so, that plan A, right? They say a. there's a plan A and there's a plan B. Yes. So plan A is uh, to study this wormhole uh, in part by flying through it and, and looking for other planets to live at, uh, to live on, but also to learn how to manipulate gravity because that's important if you want to uh, go live on other planets and move like the entire population of Earth to these other planets that we can find through the wormhole. Um and the, the setup is very similar to The Expanse in that, uh, I guess, spoilers for, what, season two of The Expanse or book like three, two or three? I believe. Um, yeah, if you haven't watched it by this point, uh, we're going to spoil it for you. Um, there's a giant wormhole in space that takes you to a bunch of uh, habitable planets. Same basic setup. So having gone through this wormhole before are a dozen scientists, uh the aforementioned Dr. Mann, who was the best of us. The best of us. He's the best of us. Don't forget. He's... Never forget. He was the best of us. They actually, as they're describing the 12, they're like, and especially Dr. Mann, who was the best of us. And I swear to God, somebody like caresses his photo. He's that much. He is the man. He is the alpha, as they say nowadays. He's the best of us. And, uh, yeah, so that's plan A, is to uh, learn about gravity, to settle other planets. Um, and plan B is, well, if we can't figure out how to get everybody off the planet with this magical gravity theory, we're going to send a bunch of uh, frozen embryos, uh, human embryos, to one of these habitable planets. So that's plan B. Right. And uh, that's that's what Anne Hathaway is doing. She is in charge of all of the frozen babies. The spermicles, yes. As far as, yeah, as far as we can tell. Uh, but, lucky for Plan A, they need a pilot, and lo and behold, here's Matthew McConaughey. Uh, so after an incredibly like uh, weird interrogation setup, 
um, mm-hmm. where he's to make it look like maybe they're bad guys, but in fact they're not bad guys. But you have to have a moment of of uh, uncertainty. You get creepy, blocky robots um, interrogating him, and he's more or less reprising his character from True Detective. I think at this point, um, just being weird and twitchy, uh, which which maybe that's the effect that a giant blocky robot has on one uh, if you're being interrogated by them. Um, but turns out. <laughs> Can I point out, it's it's very weird. He's the best pilot they ever had, but they allude somehow to the fact that they don't they hadn't been able to find him or they didn't know where he was or whatever. But I just want to point out, the, the one of the things you just don't get any sense on is like how functional was the federal government here in this in this place, right? Because I mean, they make they the government is functional enough that they can support NASA, right? And NASA building stuff, but not functional enough to find somebody? Who's been farming for twenty years? Yeah, whatever. And and we see the you know there there are still like you know drones flying around um, to right. that could possibly uh, like the uh, Indian Air Force drone uh, that they uh, hijack a little bit earlier in the movie. Oh my god! And and this is yet another. Uh, I mean, I could give fifty examples in this film of Nolan not understanding science, but let me just say. Uh, there's a statement made, these solar cells will power an entire farm. You can use them to drive a combine. Okay, so there is about one kilowatt per square meter of solar energy hitting the surface of the Earth near the equator. And that's it. And uh, you can get uh, you can get a fraction of that. Maybe you can even get, you know, in the future, 80% of that. But that's all it is. There's not enough energy on that drone to drive a farm. And there's not enough to drive a combine, for God's sakes. A combine uses like a 400-horsepower engine. I mean, it's just it's just nonsense, right? It's, it's magical thinking that, you know, there is. There's one kilowatt per square meter. And the best solar cells we have right now is are about 200 watts of that one kilowatt per square meter and that drone's just not very big so it's just and again i could use 50 of those examples but i'll just uh, upon occasion i'll just mention the most overt ones that and it's like why even make that statement i find there are several times in this movie where he almost goes out of his way to say scientifically inaccurate thing and i'll come back to another one later i mean there's no there's no reason to even make that statement i guess it's just why they would want to uh, why they would want to keep this drone. By the way, how do they jack the drone? It's an Indian, I guess, an Indian government drone, and he just, like, owns it in 15 seconds on his laptop. Let me just call up my drone hacking software, yeah, and sure. now I own the drone, and uh, I'm going to land it. But it, it, there's just the, a weirdly almost anti-scientific attitude from Nolan towards science, in, in, which is weird in a science fiction film. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so, um, turns out they found a pilot. He's amazing. Uh, he gets his daughter mad at him because he's going to go leave the planets to go try and save the planets. Uh, but, of course, she, he doesn't want to tell her that he's there to save the planet because he doesn't want to scare her and thinking that the whole planet's dying. Yep, she just knows so. he's going away. And he mentions that maybe they'll she'll catch up to him in age because... Uh, He'll be in suspended animation for a while. And so, you know, he mentions that she may catch up to him in age. They talk about that early on. 
Yeah, so this is and this is maybe one of the, the first sort of like uh, pretty reasonable explanations of physics that we see in the movie uh, as he's going through this explanation with her, right? As he gives her he gives her a watch and you know sets sets his watch to the same time and says you know at, at parts of his journey you know, he's going to be traveling in high gravitational fields, he'll be moving close to the speed of light, and so time will move differently for him. Uh, in addition to the suspended animation that uh, is is sort of the like you know sci-fi movie staple. Um, going all the way back to Alien. Um, and by the way, time moving at different speeds while while in an accelerating system, that's not a theory of relativity thing. That's observed, right? We've actually observed um, our, you know, our fastest spacecraft we've ever flown don't go very fast, but we have literally been able to observe rel- uh, small, very small relativistic effects on stuff that we've flown. Yeah, yeah, you can even see it with uh, the GPS satellites. Um, so GPS satellites carry uh, very high precision timekeeping devices on board them, and, and in fact, most you know your your cell phone when it sets its uh, sets its time, it, it it may actually get that from a GPS satellite. And the, there's a correction in the GPS software that accounts for relativity um, just from the speed of, of orbiting the Earth, which is pretty cool. Very cool. But I just want to point out that this isn't. Um, a, an area of speculative science. This is this is a known thing. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So he gets Murph mad at him. Uh, the the books are falling off the wall and, and telling telling him to stay. Uh, but uh, but he goes anyway. Uh, drives off and takes off on some kind of rocket. Uh, so this is this is maybe uh, one of the things you were mentioning earlier, which is Nolan's just fixation on a specific kind of shot that he just falls in love with. And uh, so for most of the time that we see any kind of uh, spacecraft moving, uh, including this rocket lifting off, is we only see it from an onboard camera. Uh, so we see, you know, footage that looks very similar to what, what you see, you know, what we saw from like a Saturn V taking off. Um, in fact, this rocket kind of looks like a Saturn V, you know. Took, uh, it looks took, a lot. Well, it's because they took some stock footage of a Saturn V lifting off. Basically, yeah, or, yeah. or, or re- recreated some of it. Um, and so you see the, you know, the classic you know, black and white uh, pattern on the outside of the rocket as the different stages fall off. And you can see the, you know, the dome at the top of, of each tank of each stage as it, as it falls off. And it's all sort of like, you know, film as taken from inside one of these stages. Um, but you never get... It's a, it's, it's a really interesting choice from a filmmaking perspective because you don't see the cool shot of the rocket leaving the Earth. Right. Uh, there's no... Um, I mean, there's no launch tower because this, this whole thing is underground and it's taking off from underground. Um, I, I worry a little bit about all the, like, offices and conference rooms that are sort of sharing the same space as the launch tube. Mm-hmm. I, yep. Sure. Well, although, although you know, people, there were human beings in those Titan uh, launch fi- underground launch facilities that exist in Washington State and Montana and the Dakotas and stuff like that. And they were designed to have those Titans take off and have human beings be down there and not have them be cooked. So, yeah. no. Yeah. Okay. We can, we can assume that they're something like that, probably in an old missile I- silo. I actually had a tremendous amount of heartburn with this. This, this is, again, Nolan wanting a specific shot. So, uh, con- conducting other things or, or making it so that he needed the shot. So I could spend an hour talking orbital mechanics and I won't, but I'll just say that in the same way that when a person stands on a, uh, uh, what's it, what are those things where you bounce up and down, uh, in your yard? You have a, what are they called? The, oh, uh, trampoline. 
In the same way that when a person stands on a trampoline, you deform the trampoline and you make a little dimple in the trampoline, right? Mass makes a dimple in uh, gra- time, uh, time space, space time. gravity, yeah. space time. Thank you. Um, and and the, the depth of that dimple you tend to measure in uh, velocity because um, if you throw a baseball from the surface of the Earth – um, neglecting friction in the air. Um, you know, you have to throw it at like, uh, what is it, 13, 14 kilometers per second if you want it to uh, stay away. Otherwise, if you throw it at less than 13 kilometers per second, it'll eventually come back and impact the Earth again, right? So that's called escape velocity, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's 13 to orbit. Maybe it's more than that to leave Earth space. But the point is, um, it takes a whole bunch of energy to get away from the surface of the Earth. It takes a whole bunch of energy to get away from the surface of any body. Um, The bigger the body, the more energy generally it takes to get away from it. So uh, they need... So they're they're little spacecraft. They've got a big spacecraft in orbit called Endurance, uh, right? Endurance, which was the name of uh, Cook's ship that circumnavigated the globe, Right. Cook's, uh, James Cook's uh, ship, I believe, was called the Endurance. That's why they named it. So they have their little spacecraft that has to go up to meet Endurance, which is already in orbit. And their little spacecraft is on top of this giant Saturn V-type booster, right? So they've established that that little spacecraft doesn't have enough uh, delta V, is what we call it, change in velocity uh, capability, uh, to get to orbit, right? But then they completely circumnavigate that for all the planets once they go through the wormhole and get to the wherever they're going, right? So it's just this thing, like he wanted to have a shot with a big traditional rocket, so he made it so he made it that way. But it would have been perfectly fine. In fact it would have been more than fine. It would have been much more scientifically consistent. If they just said this rocket that they're going on to orbit, whatever, it's a it's what we call a single stage to orbit. It's clearly a single stage to orbit. It does it on three other planets uh, on the other side of the galaxy that are all comparable gravity, which means they're probably about the same comparable size, which means they're probably the same comparable delta V as the Earth. So it's just this weird, it's the part where they hired, you know, they hired a good scientific, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The the scientific advisor for this this movie. But it just, it drove me nuts that they needed a, a gigantic rocket to get away from the surface of the Earth, but they didn't need a gigantic rocket to get away from any of the other planets. Yes. Why, Tim? Uh, why? 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 Exactly. Uh, I yeah. It, it, you're reminding me of a uh, many years ago. I gave a talk at uh, Seattle Nerd Night about um, you know why rockets stage, uh, right? So you can, so you, you see this like exactly like you said when we when they take off from the Earth, um, it's, it's a three stage rocket. You see the you know first stage falls away, and second stage falls away, and so forth. Um, and that's that's there just because gravity is so powerful and you need so much extra thrust that you have to carry a bunch of fuel in order to get you up there but the fuel has mass to it and the rockets that carry the fuel have mass to it so you need to jettison them as soon as you run out of some of the fuel uh and then yeah that never happens again on any other other planets that they visit no they're they're little spacecraft in fact it makes me wonder why they need endurance at all like if they're little spacecraft one of the things that i that i had a question on is how does endurance go places? Like we only ever see the little spacecraft thrusting and the little spacecraft is at the center of endurance, which spins on its long axis with a single arm connecting the center line out to the edge, which doesn't make any sense from a physics standpoint or an engineering standpoint. But we occasionally see their little capsule, their little shuttle uh, thrusting, but we never see anything else thrusting. 
And yeah. so it's one of the things I just didn't understand. Like, is endurance got... Do they need endurance to get places? Because the suspended animation system seems very simple, and Dr. Mann later on has been in one for a long time. Yeah, it seems like it's the, those are small enough that they just sort of fit into the cargo bay of any of these little these little spacecraft. Uh, we do see later on in the movie, uh, they end up using the thrusters on like the two landing craft and the big cargo vessel that's like part of Endurance or docked to Endurance. Um, so it's all kind of there. Um, the other thing that, that Endurance has, and this is this is another fun part, is um, once they once they get up to Endurance and dock with it, they uh, spin it up uh, for artificial gravity, which is actually kind of a nice thing, right? If you're going on a long mm-hmm. uh, long trip between planets, you want some gravity so that your 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 bones and muscles don't atrophy as quickly as they would in, in zero gravity. Uh, it's uh, you know it's 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 interesting to see the kinds of um, the kinds of you know biological spaceflight mitigations that they choose to include in a movie and don't choose to include in, include in a movie. Uh, so you know we have uh, cryosleep, which is a thing. Uh, it works really well as a plot device to to basically say, and then a bunch of time passes, but our characters are still the same age. Uh, but for for gravity here, you know they they've. they've They've figured out technologically how to put put people in suspended animation, but have not figured out how uh, to create gravity uh, on board a spacecraft, or how to stop the uh, stop bones and muscles from atrophying uh, through through some sort of biological means. Uh, which which is which is interesting because again, like they also can't solve this blight, which is like seems like the most important you know, biological scientific thing to fix uh, overall. And it's like, well, if you know how to do suspended animation, like that's really hard. Right. Can't you fix Sus- flight? Suspended animation and figuring out how to navigate through the wormhole are the only two scientific uh, improvements that are needed for this film, right? Uh, it, it does not presuppose any other advances beyond current technology. Like, it takes them many months to get to Saturn, which is what yep. it would take any of us to get to Saturn, right? They don't At least. have yeah. magic drives. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they, uh, so they spin up the they spin up Endurance, and it was an interesting choice, too, to, to sort of see the effect of the spin-up on um, uh, Ron, uh, one of our other scientists, um, as soon as the the spin up happens, uh, he's starting to ask for Dramamine, which makes sense. Uh, the The reason he does, of course, is that he's sitting in the space capsule, which is at the center of rotation of endurance here. And so, basically, where they're sitting in that control center, uh, they're spinning about their own heads. Uh, whereas, right. if the, you know, when they're out at the at, at the at the rim of the spinning uh, space station, it's a little bit more like um, you know, 2001: A Space Odyssey, and and they're you know actually getting pretty reasonable gravity gradient from from their head to their feet. Uh, but in the center, like they're just spinning, and that's that's nauseating for anybody. Yeah, it would be really. Uh, it basically, what you have to look at is wh- where's the gravity vector at your feet? Where's the gravity vector at your head? If they're very different you're going to be unhappy. The other thing that'll happen is you'll get uh, you'll get weird effects where you'll try to move in one direction, but uh, m- angular momentum will move you in a different direction, and that will also cause you to get really sick, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and vomit everywhere. 
you'll be uh, you'll be stumbling all around uh, as your as your inner ear reacts differently um, based on where you are in, in the spacecraft. Uh, much like uh, much like my two-year-old after she was spinning herself around in the living room for several minutes on end and then tried to walk in a straight line and promptly fell over. Nice. Although I've read there's a theory that little kids are less... They get less nauseous because uh, they're not as distant from their center of mass. So the, the distance between what's going on in your center of mass and what's going on in your inner ear is a lot, that moment arm is a lot shorter. And so these uh, centripetal cross product issues are less of a big deal for a smaller person than it is for a longer person. But which is, this is a theory why little kids are so fine with roller coaster rides and whatnot, and so many mm. adults have a harder time with them. It's one theory. I don't know if it's true or not, but I read it somewhere. Well, clearly this movie was on to something and that we should just send children into space uh, so that, uh, you know, I made a smaller too, you know, they eat less. Yeah, less, um, less food. Don't, yeah. don't People don't eat a lot sickness. of food. There's, there's a thing where one of the scientists winds up staying on the ship and like 20 years pass. Humans eat a lot of food. That's a right? lot of food. Yeah. There's, uh, f- there's four kilocals per gram in general in food, right? You need 3,000 kilocals uh, per day. Maybe you're small. You only need 2,000 kilocals. Uh, that's still 500 grams of food per day times 20 years. That's a lot of food. And there's no evidence that they're growing food, right? Um, so, again, playing fast and loose with time and space. Yeah. Yeah, another cinematic choice, right? You know, what what do they choose to to make realistic and what do they choose to sort of ignore? Um, right? You know, you compare it to a movie like Sunshine where including including the garden uh, on the spacecraft was an important plot point uh, later on in the movie. Uh, and so it was, it was important to show that, like, oh, hey, look, we have a garden because you needed to grow food uh, for this journey. Uh, but, okay, so we spun up the rocket. Um, Ron's getting sick. Uh, well, they're, they're sent off from Earth. Uh, and the first time we hear Michael Caine uh, reading Dylan Thomas. Um, and, you know, like, I'll take that once. Like, you know, sure. I, I could listen to Michael Caine reading poetry all day. Um, just maybe not the same poem over and over again. And then somebody else that reads it late in the movie, don't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he reads he, 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 says it again on his deathbed um so let's see so we get to saturn i don't i don't remember if they say do they say how long it took them to get there uh, to said it's gonna take months i don't, I don't remember yeah exactly. yeah they do a little, little cryo sleep yeah does that cryo sleep seems like seem like the most claustrophobic thing you've ever seen in your entire life like it like if i was just gonna put you in a ziploc bag right and dunk you underwater don't you think that would involve a certain amount of anxiety I'd, yeah, I'd want a lot of drugs for that. Me too. A lot, a lot. I'd want all the Thorazine in the world combined with all the lithium in the world in a cocktail. Yeah, that just seems like, uh, yeah, nobody had any anxiety. They're just like, all right, just zip me up in the bag and dunk me underwater. It'll be fine. They seem, there, was a brief, there was a brief moment, I think, when uh, I think the first time we see the cryosleep happen, that they're, they're at least talking about drugs. Hmm. Um and 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 McConaughey is sort of like the last one to to go in, and so he he, mm-hmm. he, he waits for his drugs. Um, I was just looking up how long it it takes to get to Saturn, kind of depending on how you get there. Um, Voyager uh, Voyager one took about three years to get to Saturn from Earth. Um, so we can expect yeah you know, something like that probably. Uh, of course they 
they got there by doing some flybys on the way there um, to pick up speed, um, especially a big flyby by Jupiter. Um, so, you know, missed opportunity to maybe show some cool shots of Jupiter flying past on a flyby, um, but we do get some some pretty sweet uh, visualization of uh, flying close to Saturn uh, when they when they arrived there. I thought that was I know, that was one of the few points in the movie that I wished for a bigger television. Hmm. Uh, or to see it in IMAX, which I guess is how this this movie is really made for IMAX. Sure, it was filmed in IMAX, right? Yeah, I yeah. believe. Yeah. Um, so, so we get I, to, I, I, ha- yeah. I had questions about they're describing at Saturn. There's this wormhole that's formed, and they've known about it for about fifty years, and they know that it goes to another galaxy. Which, first of all, how do they know it goes to another galaxy? Right? Um, our galaxy has. Uh, 200 billion stars, 100 billion stars, something, something on that order. It'd, it'd be very hard to know uh, that it's in another galaxy, but whatever. Um, I mean, I guess you know, we're never going to know any of those sorts of answers. But it just it, it that how do you navigate? Um, how do they know where they're going to go? Different star systems. I mean, if you go through, I mean. All these star systems are, I guess, close to each other, or they're all part of Gargantua. I mean, the twelve, the twelve people who went through, I believe, were supposed to have gone to like twelve different places in different star systems. I don't know. It, just, it takes a long time, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, about mm-hmm. just going to Saturn in our simple little solar system takes a long time. The idea of going between star systems, like black hole or not, uh, takes a long time. I mean, I guess I, it's some weird way to navigate the black hole. I don't know. It doesn't just didn't make any sense to me. The, how long it takes to get places and where things are relative to other things. I never got a good sense for in this movie. Where Gargantua was with respect to the three planets. Like, they're all in the Gargantua system, right? The Yes. Yes. Uh, but, yeah, there were right, so 12 planets total, three of which are in this Gargantua system. And the other, and those are the three that they go check out. Those right? are the good ones, yeah. Right, and but and they kind of allude to this, but not enough. Any system with a black hole is going to be completely uninhabitable, right? Because the black hole emits gargantuan amounts of radiation all the time in every direction, right? The accretion disk, as stuff is coming in, uh, just massive, like incredibly deadly environment, right? It it is yeah, uh, and and so I was trying to uh, do a, a tiny bit of research um, before we started talking here on okay how could this be possible right so let's let's talk about let's talk about Gargantua um, and and the scientific advisor for this movie um, who is uh, um, a somewhat somewhat famous uh, Caltech physicist by the name of Kip Thorne uh, he's worked worked a lot with Stephen Hawking um, and. A lot of his work on black holes, singularities, um, event horizons, that kind of thing, um, really not only informed this movie uh, as as a advisor for it, uh, but the way uh, the way in which the visual effects were created for the wormhole in particular, the way that the light sort of bends around and through it, um, that's going through that exercise of creating that visualization actually gave him some insight into how such a thing would actually work in in reality uh, and, and so it actually it, it, it um, he says it, it advanced several of his theories on how just how a wormhole would actually work and how a black hole would exist in in, in time and space which is which is kind of cool 
and, and haven't they since this movie came out? It was the one thing that I thought this movie had great credit in because haven't they imaged a black hole and doesn't it look uh, visually a lot like it does in this movie? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was the there was the sort of yeah famous image of a black hole uh, from just a year or two ago, uh, and uh, yeah, I, re- I remember um, just a couple of years ago I went to a, a talk by uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson where he he described how some of the visualizations were made for this movie um and, and the physics that they were based on and uh remembered remembered that talk when that that image came out uh of of what a black hole actually looks like which is pretty cool uh, to to be able to tie you know film and and science together that way it, it was uh it was definitely one of the high points uh for the movie a low point is when they're talking about the three we get to a big batch of exposition where they talk about a bunch of stuff, including the three planets they're going to go to. My one of my one of my favorite bonkers moments in the movie is somebody mentions Gargantua, and uh, Coop says, "What's Gargantua?" And it's like, "Oh my god!" So are we to believe that they sent? I mean, I guess he's such a great pilot that you don't even have to tell him where he's going. Or what the conditions are going to be like when he gets there. Uh, what kind of navigating he's going to do when he gets there. What's Gargantua? Uh, it's the gigantic black hole at the center of the solar system that you're going to. Just FYI. Oh, I guess there's a giant black hole here. All right, cool. Uh, you know, Matthew McConaughey. It's cool. All right, all so right, all right. I, so, so I wrote down here in my notes from the other night... I don't want to. I don't want to bag on Larry Niven. He's a he's a legend and he's a genius. But I wrote down is is Nolan the Larry Niven of filmmakers? And the reason I ask this question is Larry Niven is a genius at coming up with cool systems, right? Like the the Ring World is just amazing, yeah. and the smoke uh, the smoke uh, smoke ring uh, the yeah smoke or smoke whatever it's called that integral trees is on right the gaseous mm. toroid where life evolves around a neutron star just he comes up with a whole bunch of great ideas uh not known for his characterization i would say that if you say what is he best known for he's more known for the science and uh world building that he does and and not as much for his depth of characterization. And I wonder if Nolan is the same way. If Nolan is, uh, he's a, he's a cinematographer and filmmaker and, and lit, literal visionary, right? He sees visions and puts them to, uh, celluloid. Um, but I just, I found a lot of characterization at this point in the movie, um, weird and awkward and stilted and, and not very believable for people. Yeah. So, I, I I wrote down at one point. Um, oh look, the lady scientist is making her decisions based on emotions uh, when the, when they're ta- when they're arguing over which planets to go to, um, which again very very uh, very flat character writing. Although Coop Coop makes his decisions based on emotions too, but it's that classic thing where like people just say what's happening rather than show mm-hmm. it right because mm-hmm. they don't know really how to show it, so they just say it outright. Um, yeah. So they so they get to Saturn, they go through the wormhole in uh a set of images that owe a lot to two thousand and one. Oh right? yeah. A yeah. lot. Yeah. What one one could say that most of the structure of this movie owes a lot to two thousand and one. Uh yes, especially if I'm sure you read the book like I did, and know the story in two thousand one that goes on beyond going through uh the 
monolith in orbit mm-hmm. around uh, around Jupiter. But anyhow, uh, yes, there's a lot that owes a lot to 2001 in this film. Much like Ad Astra owes a lot to 2001. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, right, so so they arrive at Gargantua. Hey, what's Gargantua? Um, and there's a another pile of exposition about the orbital mechanics and like time slowing down and which planets they can and can't go to and um i i tried to follow it i i couldn't follow it uh but i did note that uh the first planet that they go to every hour that they're on the surface of the planet seven years will pass uh up in orbit correct uh so so that's a that's a problem uh especially for uh poor ron who was as you mentioned stuck up uh in orbits eating i don't know what um <laughs> eating the same recycled right. food over and over again probably um but so okay so they come down to this 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 first planet uh they do a cool cool space pilot maneuver thing where even even the onboard robot is telling Matthew McConaughey that he's too much of a hotshot and he shouldn't be flying the way that he's flying of course he's enough of a hotshot that he manages to to land this thing uh, the the space plane that they're in is is kind of neat uh, mm-hmm. I thought mm-hmm. when we the few places that we do kind of see it from outside is it it sort of looks like it's a little bit like a uh, like the dream chaser spacecraft um, which is uh, built by uh, Sierra space formerly Sierra Nevada um, sort of like like a miniature space shuttle kind of a, a deal except that the the bottom of it is uh, is uh, concave. And so it's it's this it looks sort of like a almost like an aerodynamic potato chip, and and I th- I think the idea is that with this sort of like concave underside of of this uh, the spacecraft is that it's able to generate a lot of lift when it comes in uh, to a planet's atmosphere and use that lift to burn off speed, uh, which is which is what he talks about as as they're coming in. You know, the robot's like, use the retro thrusters, and he's like, nah, we're gonna burn off all the speed as we come in, and I'm gonna spiral down to a landing. Um, which all kind of makes sense. Uh, like spiraling, spiraling down on an aerodynamic glide is how the space shuttle used to land, uh, used to burn off some of its its final speed. Uh, it's how Spaceship Two uh, does that as well, and and uh, presumably how Dream Chaser also lands. Um, so they come down onto this planet, and it turns out to be uh, covered in an ocean, probably that is uh, two, feet what, like, two feet deep. Two feet deep. Three feet deep. Yeah. Yep. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Why can't they see that from orbit? Uh, I mean, clouds. In no, way, no. Maybe? It's. Uh, I think I believe it's sunny. Um, okay. But even if you even if you had clouds, um, you could image the surface of the planet. Um, yeah, they're looking for. So Miller was the scientist who went to this planet, and they need Miller's data. Uh, they said uh, it was just the initial data repeating endlessly. Um, and uh, but Miller, they can't communicate with Miller at all. They don't get any signal from Miller, which to me seems like it'd be a tip off that maybe all is not well. If you're going to invest the Delta V again to go down and come back from the surface of, of this planet, yep. a lot of fuel. You could just be like, uh, "Hello, Miller, are you there? Miller, can you hear us? Miller, hello, Miller." Yeah, you don't. You don't get again. Like the cinematic choices are interesting here, right? You don't get that scene, right? You don't get the like, let's you know go into a parking orbit and try and communicate. Um, some of it is, is I guess, because 
something something orbital mechanics only enough time to like zip down and zip back up again yeah and um, you said something about going down on the far side of the planet and all this stuff uh, none of it made sense um but that's okay yeah so not only do they not notice that there's a giant ocean covering at least their landing site but they also think it's just like pretty okay to just kind of like fly in and land and they like extend the landing gear and then all of a sudden like oh look there we are it's just two feet deep it's fine we have we, we will find out later it's possible to flood these engines so landing on the water planet um, maybe when you have engines that can flood is maybe not a great idea yeah maybe maybe not uh, I mean it looks cool like like yes. you know the the shot of astronauts in spacesuits sort of slogging through uh, you know knee deep water it's a uh, it's pretty cool. It's it's been used in a bunch of other places too. There's a, a a couple of Doctor Who episodes a few years ago that had kind of a similar setup. Uh, I think there was a spiritualized music video uh, from a little while ago that uh, has um, J Spaceman walking around in a, a, a Gemini suit, slogging through water. It's a cool look. There is a one of the best science fiction stories ever written. It's called Surface Tension, and it takes place on a planet where basically nothing, the, 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 the ground above sea level is just marshy, shallow land. There's no, there's no big continents or anything like that. And so most everything is just puddles in this, uh, basically, uh, littoral region that can get mm. washed over with water. And, and, uh, it's just a great story, but it, it's on a planet that's essentially like this, where it's just shallow water everywhere. Except. Except. <laughs> So, um, as, uh, as, as you probably know, a little bit, even more, more than I do, you know, for those of us living in a semi-coastal region, um, we think a lot about how tidal waves can form, right? And how, you know, what exactly is needed in terms of what the sort of underwater, uh, geology needs to look like. Um, but somehow, somehow on, in this ocean that is only two feet deep, we find that there are not mountains, but mountain-sized tidal waves of doom. Mm-hmm. And and see, the thing is, waves don't work this way at all. And it isn't a matter of waves not working this way on Earth. Waves just don't work this way. Waves as a medium, fluids, uh, don't work this way. Um, what happens when you have a wave uh, that, let's say, let's say you drop a, an asteroid off the coast of the Yucatan and it creates a giant... Uh, wave that um, spreads out and drowns, you know, North America and South America and travels around the world and all this. Um, the matter in the water doesn't go thousands of kilometers. The energy goes thousands of kilometers. And the way it does it, if you if you look at just a little particle of water that's sitting and a wave comes along and you plot that particle of water over time, it actually forms a circle. And it, it circles and it goes forward and up and reaches a crest and then comes down and circles back and, and eventually winds up where it started. Um, and so the wave passes along, but the physical matter doesn't pass along. And so what happens is as a wave goes to shoal up on a coast, um, let's say again, you've got your, your Chicxulub impactor in it and it hits the coast of the Yucatan. You've got these giant waves. They're shoaling up. Uh, as you approach, you know, primordial New Orleans, let's say, which wasn't where it is today. But um, what happens is when the water gets to be about half the, uh, no, equal to the height of the wave, 
the wave starts to break. Well, first of all, the wave slows down as it approaches the shore. It gets taller. But when the ratio of the wave height to the depth of the water below the wave is about one to one, the wave breaks. And from then on, you just have sort of foamy, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, chaotic junk that is much shorter and the energy uh, partially dissipates because you're you're heating everything up and the the thing is waves just don't get that high you cannot have a wave that's basically higher than the distance the the base depth of the water underneath it because it'll just break it'll it'll just roll over and so this this thing just doesn't happen at all in physics and it's a, it's a beautiful image like when they say those aren't mountains right it's a wave. And then there's the great scene where McConaughey's like, oh, that wave is traveling away from us. And, you know, you have the wonderful 15 seconds where he walks around to the other side of the ship and realizes there's a gigantic wave barreling down on them, right? Um, that's a wonderful image. It's just scientific nonsense. Yeah, you would you would hope that, especially on a planet orbiting a giant black hole, that you would, you would get some cool tides. Um, right. Right. But in order to have those tides, you need somewhere for the water to come from and, and, and go to. So, uh, let's see here. Um, so, giant waves are coming. Uh, they try and go and, and find the, the flight data recorder uh, from their colleague's spa- uh, crashed spacecraft. They don't uh, know it's crashed at first. They're just trying to find yeah. where, where's her spaceship? Where's the... They need her data, which I, I don't know why, but okay. They really, really need her data. Really, really, really. Yeah. For some reason. Yeah. So they find chunks of spacecraft in, in two feet of water, um, which, again, like, they're sort of, like, walking around and looking for it and following this mm-hmm. beacon. They got this cool, like, you know, military blocky robot guy with them, which you would assume would at least be able to, like, see into the water, maybe. I mean, if they know there's a beacon, they can certainly say, go over to the beacon and tell us what you see. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's cooler to have the humans uh, walk around and, and slog around and find it. Um, so, um, so Anne Hathaway finds, finds the beacon. Uh, a little tiny wave comes, maybe, and knocks her, knocks her down a little bit, and she gets trapped underneath a chunk of spacecraft. Uh, robot Block has to go over and, and pick her up and, and save her. And in the meantime, um, who's our, who's our, uh, West our other astronaut? Wes Bentley. Uh, manages to get back to the spacecraft just a little bit too slowly it gets washed he actually away. gets out of the way no he gets there first he gets out of the way to let the robot bring Anne Hathaway into the airlock and then as he's about to follow her into the airlock basically chivalry gets Wes Bentley killed sure yeah yeah uh, and and whether whether he's being chivalrous to Anne Hathaway or to the robots we will never know because he'd be dead. How, how come the wave... So we find out later, uh, the wave killed... Uh, Miller's spacecraft got pulverized. Why did Miller's spacecraft get pulverized, but not uh, Coop's spacecraft? It's, I believe, the same spacecraft. We've, we've identified from uh, man that the, the previous crews were flying to the same model of spacecraft. Why did her spacecraft get get crushed by one of these waves and not coops. They went through this exact same thing. And his spacecraft, other than getting waterlogged engines, seemed to go through the wave just fine. Uh, that's just how good of a pilot he is. Uh, he's a cork. His spaceship is a cork at that point. There's no piloting involved. But okay, fine. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so he floods the, flood the engines uh, and, and, you know, the robot tells him how much time he has until the engines dry out, which is not a... I don't know. Uh, depending on how realistic we want to pretend the engines and, and propulsion system on board this rocket are. Uh, 
you know, the solution that he comes up with is okay, I guess, maybe. Uh, he, he ends up using what he says, uh, you know, we'll use the oxygen from the cabin to, to you know, pop the thrusters, um, which I guess is a, a thing you could do. Sure. Um, the place that I would start would probably be uh, use some of the pressurants that you have, right? So mm-hmm. so basic, you know, rocket system, assume, let's assume they have uh, a fuel and an oxidizer on board. Uh, both of those systems need to be pressurized. So you'd have something like nitrogen, unless, of course, nitrogen is in short supply because of the blight back on Earth, whatever. Um, and you'd use that pressurant um, to do things like purge systems um, before you ignite them. Uh, that's pretty mm-hmm. pretty typical. Um in, in different parts of a rocket engine system, um, so you've got some some nice nice stuff there. You, you know, you could say maybe it's not going to purge it fast enough, so you need to run a little ox rich and and to to start the thing up. Okay, sure, it looks cool. It's it's basically like you know popping the clutch on a um uh, on a manual car transmission. A, you know, yeah, yeah. right. Where where, where your uh, starter motor isn't working, so you push your car downhill and then you pop the clutch to start it up. Yeah. For kids out there, there used to be these things called manual transmission cars, and you could pop a thing called a clutch uh, to start the car up. All right, some of our audience will have no idea what we're talking about, unfortunately. So, so yeah, so they fly off in the nick of time, and uh, they go up to orbit, and and it's been twenty three years um, in a, in objective time, and he's really mad. Um, but I, I do want to point out. As I said earlier, he told Murph at the beginning that he might catch up to her in age during one of their during their missions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, or that she sorry that she might catch up to him. Yep. Right. So whether he was in suspended animation for twenty three years or checked out on a uh, relativistic effects planet, like he's really very very distraught that twenty three years have gone by. But it is exactly a thing that he told Murph might happen. Um, yeah, which, you know, it, it's maybe that's fine, right? It's, it's one thing to sort of sign up for a mission that's going to take that long and, and another to basically, you know, have that much accelerated time and realize that that has all been, been foisted upon you uh, in one fell swoop. And yeah, and you've lost 23 years of your kids' life lives in one fell swoop. And there is that beautiful haunting scene of him watching 23 years of videos you know, getting caught up on 23 years worth of videos from his kids, which is, which is a great scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, 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 you know, young Timothy Chalamet has grown up to be, uh, Casey Affleck, um, which I don't know, maybe seems like a step backwards, but, um, you know, you do what you do. Um, (sighs) Casey Affleck, (laughs) Manchester um, by the sea. It was a great film. It's a shame that everything since then has clouded his, uh, future as a artist. Let's just say. So we, uh, yeah, so we get all this exposition from Earth, uh, and we sort of get a little bit of, uh, of of time spent back on Earth, where we get to meet uh, how how Murph has grown up, and uh, now played by Jessica Chastain. She is as as hinted at when um, uh, when her dad left left the planet. She is now working for NASA, uh, working for Michael Caine, and you know helping him try and solve this this gravity physics thing. And uh, I might be getting some of these flashbacks in the wrong order, but who cares? Um, uh, at, at some point, Michael Caine become, falls ill, uh, and she goes to see him on his deathbed. And in this, like, sort of 
annoyingly Christopher Nolan-esque uh, dialogue that is extremely hard to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he explains much like Bane, much like much Bane in this regard. Yes, yes. Um, and so uh, rather than you know whispering to her that that he was um, you know born to the dark uh, like Bane, uh, he explains that uh, there was never actually any way for Plan A to work. Right. He claims uh, that you can't get the information you would ever need to solve uh, A, and so uh, it's it's theoretically impossible to solve the gra- the gravity problems. And uh, he only he only told people A because he didn't believe that they would work to assure the a future for other people. They had to work to secure their own future. So, and at this point, our view of Michael Caine switches from you know benevolent, cool old guy with with a with a neat accent uh, to like pretty pretty evil scientist, like more or less. Really? Because I feel like um, I feel like it was just more end end justifies the means, right? And I didn't I didn't I didn't come away thinking he was evil. I just thought he was the ultimate. Uh, you do what you got to do. And he was going to secure the human race. I mean, man was in on it, right? We find out later man mm-hmm. knew and he yep. was cool with it. And he yep. makes an argument for it, right? He, he says, well, it's the same kind of morality, basically. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There were two peas in a pot. I, I didn't, I didn't take it as evil. Um, but I, I certainly thought in the context of this movie, not telling your central characters what's really going on is certainly uh, not evidence of any faith in them whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, maybe uh, you know, if you don't want to go as far as evil, I'd, I'd say it's definitely a dick move. Hmm. Sure. Because, uh, because, right? Because not only is he is he hiding this from you know literally everybody who works at NASA, which we never really see how many people there are, but like you know enough to build like spaceships and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he's been hiding it from Murph this whole time, right? Murph, you know, at some at one point she's looking at his equations and she's like, "Why are you doing all this math with both your hands tied behind your back?" And he's like, oh, I don't know. Let's go over here now. Um, and he, he was keeping it from his own doctor, uh, from his daughter. Sorry, his own daughter. Yeah. Um, Anne Hathaway, right? Didn't know. Right. Yeah. So he sent his daughter off on this while lying to her. Yeah. And it, it, it's sort of a, an example to me of, of how you know, movies in particular like to propagate this this myth of the um, sort of the lone scientist uh, right, this sort of like great man of science, right? You know, so it's because of this this one person that we're able to, you know, this figure out, you know, this one particular theory or or whatever else. Um, and if you know, if Michael Caine can't solve it, then nobody else in the world is smart enough to figure it out, or even to figure out that he's stopping progress on this one particular theory. Right. right. Nobody's no... checking his work. He's not saying, hey, Bob, oh, crap, I just realized I don't think we can figure out. Like, they're not doing design reviews, right, on, yeah. <laughs> on yeah. any of his work. And, and Murph is there, right? Murph is going through his, mm-hmm. his math with him. She's, she's there to help him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she gets, she gets close to the truth. Um, but, you know, she's just not as smart or whatever. So, so between the water planet and the next place they go, uh, they say the following thing. Love is the one thing we are capable of perceiving that transcends the bounds of time and space. 
Sorry, I just, I just, I just coughed up my dinner. Oh man, Swedish meatballs. Oh, I should not have, I should not have had those. They do not taste as good coming back up as they did going down. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the it's the fifth dimension. I love is the fifth dimension. Uh, you know, it's the fifth element. Certainly, I mean, we know that from previous films. Oh my god. Oh my god. Okay. Well. Yeah, I, I okay. There's our there's our foreshadowing, uh, I guess, or or five shadowing, as the case may be. Um, I believe they've established by the way that gravity transcends the balance of time and space as well. So love and gravity. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Which is a, a good good album name, I think. Yes. So uh, all right, so we realize they can't come back. Um, plan A is uh, is a lie uh, told by an Englishman. Um, and regardless, uh, after some arguing about which planet, which of the other two planets they can go to, because they only have enough fuel to get to one mm-hmm. again, and get home, they can go to one. Yeah. And, and which, like, mm-hmm. why do they have to go home? But okay, yeah, seems like it would be more important with the fate of the human race. It seems like it would be more important to cover both planets than to get home. But what do I know? Right. If they figure out gravity, right? If they get the data that they need. Uh, to right. figure out how gravity works, then oh, that's true because a, they have right. to come home. No, yeah, they have to come home because they have to get the data back. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, the, right. and there's not so the, so there's not high enough bandwidth to transmit enough data back through the wormhole to Earth, um, and yet, right, because that's the whole reason why they have to go to like fly back themselves, right, and yet there's decent enough bandwidth to get all that video through from earth from earth from in one in one direction yeah. but not the other yeah i, I, yeah. I was okay with that like so i was okay with thing. that yeah yeah uh okay maybe so they, they have about... really big transmitters on earth and they have really small transmitters on their ship which is a real thing right thing. like yeah. on earth there's a thing called the dsn the deep space network and uh you know it is very easy to send information from earth out to our probes much much easier than it is to send data back from our probes to earth because we can pump out a lot of juice from earth and not much juice from the probes so sure yeah yeah and so yeah if we're if we're you know getting data back from something like a voyager 2 right it's about like what like a, a watt of uh of transmitted power coming from a uh, spacecraft all the way out there so that makes sense so they argue about which of the two planets to go to obviously lady scientist wants to go to the one uh where the scientist she's in love with uh is is currently trapped uh, but the best of us i forget his name dr man dr man the best of us i can't believe you forgot his name he's dr man the best of us he's the best it's, of it's us. all one it's like a five-part name dr man his name is uh vince vince dr man the best of us is his name so he's been transmitting this data that shows that his planet is the one. It is the place where everybody needs to be. Uh, and so that it's is really great. the obvious choice. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, okay, they argue, they get to the point, and they're like, okay, fine, he is the best of us, so we need to go there. Right. And, and here's another one of those things where Nolan bends uh, time and space and everything to get a shot that he wanted to get. And it so bugged me. So they're coming down through the atmosphere of the planet, and then they smack into a cloud. Okay, so forget for a second that you don't 
come down through the atmosphere at a walking pace, right? You come down through the atmosphere at Mach something, right? And even towards the end, you're moving hundreds of miles per hour. And if you hit a solid thing at hundreds of miles per hour, bad things happen. But it's a, it's a two second nothing image, right? It's just going through the clouds and then it's like thunk. And the ship bounces off, essentially bounces off this frozen cloud, which doesn't work at all in physics. So it's like this whole thing where he, he, he kind of ruins the science of this bit for, for no kidding, a five second effect shot. Right. And I just feel like he wanted to see his space. He wanted to show you an image where you think it's a cloud and then something bounces off of it. But it's just, uh, uh, I found it very frustrating. It it was and it, it looks cool, uh, I guess. Except that it's another one of these shots where it's basically taken from a camera that's sitting on the wing of the spacecraft, looking at the spacecraft, and then sort of beyond it. And you know, there's it, it's the same shot that that he keeps coming back to over and over again, uh, which is you know, it's a thing that you see, right? You know, especially with um, you know, we saw it with uh, you know Virgin Galactic Spaceship Two. They have a camera on on one of the tail booms that kind of looks down over the spacecraft. It looks cool, uh, except that with this, for something something about that shot for me, just sort of made the spacecraft, this particular spacecraft, look less interesting. Uh, mm. You know, maybe it was just sort of the IMAX lens that they used, and sort of just made this thing look a lot more flattened and kind of boring. Um, which is kind of weird. So, so, did, yeah, it, like, so it didn't even work ci- cinema, cinema, cinemagraphically for you. Yeah, I mean, the first time was cool. Like the first time, it's like, oh yeah, it's kind of a neat shot. But like, you need to like put it in an establishing shot. Put it in a you know like here's this thing streaking through the sky, or you, you don't you don't ever get that that particular view. Uh, it's just like the same shot over and over again of, of looking over the cockpit. Um, and, and he did this, I think, you know, because, yeah, it's, it's something that, um, you know, NASA does as well or, or, or used to do. Um, like, yeah, it looks cool once or twice. Um, so, so Nolan's sense of space it, as a filmmaker is not good. Uh, when I see a Ridley Scott movie, and especially when I see a James Cameron film, like, I know spatially what's going on in these films. Like, I understand what's how one thing is connected to another thing as related to another thing. And you read interviews, like I said, especially with Cameron. Like, you ask him, like, any door in Pandora, where does that door go? That guy's got a, a whole explanation. And he never opens the door, but he's got an explanation for what's behind that door. Nolan is the exact opposite. I can't, for the life of me, even the second time I saw it, like, the relationship between their lander and man's lander and man's spaceship and where are they, you know, when they're in, you know, he's got his own version of TARS, the, the blocky robot. Where is that? Is that in his spaceship? No, it's not. It's in his, it's in his uh, land, you know, his HAB module that he's built. And just the whole idea of sense of space, I found just very, very murky. And especially in this part of the film, I just didn't know where anything was happening. And there's two... Like, I didn't even really get that there's, that man had his own spaceship at first, which sort of begs the question, like, why didn't he go home if he had his own spaceship? Um, I guess he needed an endurance type ship, uh, and he, that had been converted to his base. I mean, they said none of these people could go home, um, but uh, I don't know. Uh, Yeah. yeah. It's a Nolan thing. 
it's an it's totally an Nolan thing. Uh, I'm, I'm very I'm much reminded. like a dream. Like when you're when you're walking along in a dream, and you know you cover five miles in a minute, kind of a thing as you're walking. I mean, just a a very dreamy sense of space. Sorry, uh, which it shares with that Astra, by the way. I had the same criticism mm-hmm. of that Astra. It's uh, it, re- it reminds me of um, uh, the film critic Jim Emerson. Uh, a couple years ago, oh gosh, well, 10 years ago, uh, posted a video essay about, there's a shot in The Dark Knight, uh, Christopher Nolan's, you know, first, uh, second, I guess, Batman movie, um, right, this whole, like, the the whole, like, underground chase scene underneath Chicago, um, Mm -hmm. about how, like, the Gotham, you mean Gotham? The way the whole, the way that whole chase scene is cut makes no sense whatsoever in terms of where things are in space like it's a linear like you know it could be a total just like you know video game style everything moves left to right or right to left um but no it's like backwards and forwards in this way and that and, and um it's a it's a it's a really good video essay um uh if, if folks want to look it up just google for uh jim emerson uh the dark knight uh i think it might still be up i on will Vimeo. i would love to watch it because uh, Jim's awesome. Um, and so, okay, so we're on this planet, uh, which is filmed in Iceland, I think. Uh, this it entire... was filmed in Iceland. Yeah. And it's funny because our family had never been to Iceland when we saw this movie. And now, you know, a couple of us have been to Iceland three times and very much recognize this. Um, can I ask, before you get into talking about that, can you, you and I, you introduced me to David Grinspoon. I mean, not literally introduced me. I mean, I didn't get to say hi to him, but we went to see a, a presentation of his at the University of Washington many years ago on uh, speculative xenobiology or, or xeno, uh, yeah, xenobiology. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he's somebody you've taken classes from at CU, right? And he had he had some thoughts on this film. Do yeah, you... um, yeah. So uh, yeah, Dr. Grinspoon was my uh, astrobiology professor uh, back at the University of Colorado. Uh, he's uh, since moved on to all kinds of fun jobs, including. Um, he was a uh, principal investigator uh, on, or no, not the principal investigator. He was uh, part of the New Horizons mission to Pluto, um, and uh, was involved in, in some some Venus exploration as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, so he wrote up a, a thing in 2014 in Mother Jones uh, magazine um, as part of a, a podcast interview with him there, where he you know he's kind of talking about the you know, a little bit about the physics of it, um, but uh, but kind of mostly about the um, the biology of the whole thing. Um, I recommend that that folks read it or, or listen to that podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, he says, you know, yeah, sure, you know, wormholes. It kind of works works for a you know a plot device and and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, but yeah, when it comes to sort of the like the biology and the the layout of the planets and that kind of thing, um, it, it it does kind of like fall apart a little bit. Um, and uh, you know, it's 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 even the um, I think you talked a little bit about this, right? So the the you know the frozen Matt Damon planets, um, where it's like, well, I guess we're stuck here, and and we can we, we can probably live here, I guess. Um, uh, you know, none of none of that actually makes sense from from an actual biological perspective. Um, I'm trying to find a good a good quote here, but I think people can just can just uh, you know Google you know David Grinspoon uh, Interstellar uh, and and find find the article on Mother Jones. Um, you know, it, it, 
one of the things he does critique is the the blight and like you know like blight is eating all the nitrogen on earth is like that's not a thing that's that's not how how anything ecosystems work at all yeah Yeah. okay so Um, you're saying they filmed it in iceland it's gorgeous Uh, all the the stuff on this planet yeah it's it's beautiful uh but it's frozen um as as uh and they unfreeze uh crazy matt damon uh and uh he he may have been the best of us at one point uh he's clearly no longer the best of us uh possibly having been driven mad by all the isolation um you know it is kind of a beautiful scene when they when they thaw him out and he just sees like another human being after mm-hmm. however many years, and he just just basically breaks down, um, which is sad. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, it turns out uh, he's he's gone bananas. Uh, to make a long story short, he faked all of his reports, saying that this was a habitable place, uh, just so that he could get picked up and taken back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he. Uh, basically lures um, Matthew McConaughey out into the ice to say, hey, we're going to go, you know, down below this frozen level that we're at and and down by the surface. That's where life can exist, maybe, possibly. Um, and they get a little closer to where he says they're going to go, go, and then uh, turns out there is no surface and they get into a fist fight in spacesuits. Uh-huh. And there is a great moment, though. Where uh, Dr. Man is headbutting Coop and uh, Coop's like, what are you doing? Stop it. And he does it again. And Coop's like, look, you have a 50% chance of being the one who dies in this headbutt. And Dr. Man says, that's the best odds I've had in a long time, which is a, which is a great line. It's a, it is. And it's, it's, uh, it's sort of like, you know, who's whose spacesuit manufacturer was uh you know putting a little bit little bit of extra epoxy in the mix that day or mm-hmm. you know um whose whose QA department uh maybe let some little micro crack slip uh and no it turns out it's McConaughey um he's the one who who gets the the cracked faceplate yep not enough to kill him but enough to slow him down yeah yeah well cuz you know he's that good there, there is one thing I love about Doctor Man, though, which is they get they hint at his insanity because he never shuts up. Like he talks continuously, he gives great piles of oratory in all situations. You know, he's talking to uh, Doctor. He's he's talking to Coop about you know what do you see? You know what, what do science thinks people see at their moment of death? Which is like a really weird thing to be talking about when you're trying to save the human race. Um, but he just talks and talks and talks and talks and talks, and it becomes. Uh, I mean, they put a point on it a little bit later in the film uh, when he just keeps talking all the way up till uh, his <laughs> until he can't anymore. But I thought that was nicely done. That was probably the only characterization that I thought had much subtlety to it at all, other than maybe the kids. Um, it's just, you know, you could kind of tell that this guy was insane. I was kind of waiting for somebody to pick up on the fact he just never shut up. He, uh, yeah, it's it's the, you know, he's been trapped by himself with maybe a robot, but the robot doesn't work anymore. Um, and uh, I think that, yeah, at one point he says, you know, I thought I was alone before the robot went offline. And, and then no. I was really alone. 
and, yeah. and and he also like a lot of people that struggle with mental mental illness he says things that are you know english language words put together but not in ways that are contextually reasonable like um as he is uh he, he decides he's going to steal endurance basically uh and and go home like he's saying the situation is hopeless we are the future yeah but you're you're taking the sperm sickles all the way back to earth with you where they will do no good like if he succeeded in his plan it's not at all clear he was just going home right and he was yeah. just saying yeah. stuff to say stuff basically but but things that made no sense contextually right so um so let's see uh right so he he steals one of the spacecraft uh heads up to endurance uh, mcconaughey comes and gets gets rescued uh from his cracked faceplates um he gets sort of a little something or other to breathe um to help him out there um sure why not the other the other astronaut gets blown up right? uh oh yeah because there was ron. a poor ron poor ron 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 gets the short stick i think um i mean west bentley at least had had a cool death i think um ron has been you know left <laughs> left up in orbit by himself for uh, 23 years and then is is left with with the robots to go and and uh debug them and, and bring one of them back online and then finds that it's been booby trapped for whatever reason and then gets and by out. the way tars survives that uh place being blown up right the thing that kills uh ron ron dead as a doornail uh tars has just basically got some some carbon soot on him he's just fine yeah yeah which wow good for him yeah sure um so let's see our our next sort of big scene here is uh matt damon he's stolen stolen spacecraft he's going up to endurance and he's going to go go try and dock with it but he's been locked out uh and and so we get Mm -hmm. this sort of like weird scene of um not only is he you know talking over and then and then ignoring uh the broadcasts from uh our intrepid heroes telling him that he can't dock um we get this sort of weird scene where he where he gets this sort of like partial dock thing happening, mm-hmm. and you see. Um, I was trying to figure out where they got some of the designs for the the docking mechanisms uh, between uh, these. Ships. It is it is a NASA it is a NASA protocol because that three lobe where each of the lobe is sixty degrees that that folds out that is a NASA design because that was one of the early placeholder docking uh, on uh, a certain company's uh, certain space vehicle that um, I may know a little bit about. It looked yeah yeah it looked it looked very similar to. Um, has a name for it. Um, yeah, there, there, there's a standard NASA docking adapter yeah, that looks yeah, like that. I think, it, I think it's called the, the NDL, maybe? The NASA docking... I don't know. Something or other. Um, it's expensive. I'm sure it's expensive and delicate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it looked... The one that they were using looked both uh, a little more complicated in certain ways and a little bit less complicated in other ways than, than the ones that uh, are currently on board the International Space Station. Um, but it's a universal docking adapter, so that's kind of nice. Um, so the, the the thing that happens, right, is he doesn't he doesn't quite dock all of the way. He gets the sort of like partial dock where they're they're kind of connected, and and there's this sort of repeated shot of these uh, these connectors. Uh, they're actually called dogs clamps, uh, clamps that are coming down and, and loosening, and they're not like you know the, whatever mechanism is controlling them is, is continually trying to to grab onto the spacecraft, but for whatever reason 
it's not working. Well, they do say that the the robot that was still on the ship was actively trying to not allow him to dock, right? It had it had recognized that what he was doing and without even the crew asking him to, which is an interesting uh, set of programming, mm-hmm. had gone ahead and blocked out uh, uh, Dr. Man. So he, he was he was actively trying to prevent this thing from happening. Yeah. Uh, so he ignores the warnings coming over the radio and this part uh, this part kind of made sense, I think, right? So he goes into his airlock. Mm-hmm. Uh, the airlock is pressurized because he's he's expecting to go from one pressurized vehicle to the uh, pressurized uh, endurance over here. But without having a hard dock, right, the, those, those clamps that are not actually connected uh, would be providing a nice structural connection from one spacecraft to the next. He goes in and opens the hatch and pressure moves from one place to another uh, and has nothing to react its force, and so it blows his spacecraft off, smashes into part of Endurance, and uh, lots of things go kablooey. Not the last time Matt Damon will find himself in a malfunctioning airlock, I'll just point out. No, no. Um, different film, but of course. Different, but. different film. Uh, so so this, was, this was the point when uh, I wrote down a question that I had for you here, which is, uh-huh. which is we see... So at this point, the Endurance is spinning, right? It's, it's right. maintaining its artificial gravity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doctor Man, the best of us, uh, leaves leaves the best of himself uh, smeared all over the side of one of these uh, pieces of the rotating space station, which explodes. So the space station is no longer balanced. Tola, what happens to a rotating vehicle in space when it is not no, balanced? Nothing like good. A car tire. Nothing. Nothing good. Well, I mean, the whole thing. So I'm looking at a picture right now of endurance. None of it makes sense structurally. Um, you can't spin. You don't ever put anything on a cantilevered beam. The the their their lander vehicle is on a cantilevered beam at the center of this uh, vehicle. If the vehicle was actually uh, symmetric, axisymmetric. Uh, and didn't have a cantilevered thing. It might kind of make sense, but it, none of it, none of it makes sense. That that whole scene, uh, I think it's, I think it's spinning when uh, when he's docking. Maybe it isn't though. Maybe it starts spinning when the explosion happens because he doesn't have to spin his vehicle up to dock with it, right? So, and he's only just docked. Uh, I maybe he starts spinning it up after he docks, but but that's the other thing I don't understand. If you look at that. Like, there isn't a second docking port, and he blows up the main docking port. And, of course, you and I have reviewed Sunshine, which has a scene where a dock blows up. And you don't have – I mean, if you don't have a dock, you don't have a dock, right? And uh, But somehow later, Coop and uh, Anne Hathaway uh, get back on through an auxiliary dock. But on this on that kind of a vehicle, it doesn't, there's nothing left on the center line. And it also, when it blows up – uh, yeah, segments of the um, circular perimeter are destroyed, but not in a way that the structural tether is disconnected. But it's definitely no longer axisymmetric, which will cause it to deform in crazy ways. And none of this makes any sense physically. Like, if you go back and look at 2001, the discovery makes sense structurally. When you go back and look at 2010, which is an underrated film, I believe, the Leonov makes sense structurally, and it's why they cribbed it for Babylon 5 for the Minbari cruisers, because it's or the, the Earth Force cruisers, because it's such a such a great design. But 
nothing about this spaceship makes any sense uh, structurally at all. It's it it's single what's called single point of failure, and uh, it would certainly wouldn't survive an explosive decoupling of that uh, dock vehicle. None of it none of it uh, would 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 still be working. And 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 then they have the incredibly lazy tired trope of having the spacecraft be right on the edge of the stratosphere. If I could if I had a nickel for every movie that the second anything happens in orbit you're immediately at the outer edge of the atmosphere. <sighs> That's just not how it works, right? What happens is if you plot out a picture of orbits, and here, here I have to explain for you, Tim, because of course you don't have any orbital vehicles. Uh, but you know, I work with orbital vehicles, uh, mm. which is mm-hmm. a little different mm-hmm. than what you guys work on in in, uh, in your with your little ride. Uh, but sorry, uh, mm. but so you know, you measure, yeah, so far. So you measure if you plot out orbital decay times as a function of altitude, right? It isn't It isn't a cliff. It's not like at 300 kilometers, you're fine, and at 299 kilometers, you're going down, right? It's like at 300 kilometers, your orbit time is measured in months or years, and at, you know, 250, it's measured in days, and at 200, it's measured in hours or something like that, right? Like, it takes it takes a long time to deorbit, and that's a, that's the thing that, uh, the other thing that movies get wrong, it takes a long time to get to orbit, it takes a long time to get down from orbit. Um, and uh, it isn't something that just accidentally, like a ship gets knocked out of its orbit. And we saw this in Gravity. Uh, we saw this in a bunch of different movies. I think other things that you and I have also reviewed where immediately uh, things are deor- are starting to deorbit, right? And it's all in the name of having a, you know, plot, uh, an urgency to the plot, right? I get that. Oh, yeah. But it's just, yeah. I'm just so tired of it. So it's, immediately uh, they have to dock almost instantaneously, or the thing's going to deorbit. Yeah, yeah, because uh, you know the ex- the explosion did something that you know uh, caused it to fall out of orbit, right? Which is also not a thing. Um, you know, I, I I do in my in my own defense. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I was uh, one of the one of the folks in charge of a uh, low Earth orbit satellite called Snowy, a student nitric oxide explorer, uh, which orbited at. Um, trying to look up, look it up again. Uh, yeah, it orbited uh, 525 kilometers. Um, it was in a polar orbit. I was looking at the upper atmosphere of the Earth. It was pretty pretty neat. And uh, I was in one of two graduate students who was in charge of operating the satellite through the end of its life in deorbit. And, and I remember exactly as you were saying, uh, it took a heck of a long time, right? Like, you know, 525 kilometers is not it's not that high. It's a it's a pretty low orbit, um, and this this thing was. Um, it, it's higher than the ISS, I will say though. ISS is like four twenty two, I think. So it's a pretty good it's a pretty good orbit. Yeah, and and it, it was low enough that um, you know over the course of its life, um, it launched in nineteen ninety eight, um, and uh, it was you know at that altitude, it experienced enough atmospheric drag just on its own that its orbit very slowly lowered uh over time and so from from 1998 through its re-entry in 2003 right it was slowly decaying and those so last uh yeah those last you know that last year like it just seemed like it was kind of taken taking its own sweet time um we we didn't actually know exactly when it was going to re-enter uh which was kind of kind of fun and interesting um got to work with uh some some folks actually at norad uh mm-hmm. who were you know tracking the satellite and using it to um help 
help improve their their calculations on how stuff falls out of orbits. Oh, very um, cool. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's not a uh, you know, we we didn't feel the need to to find Matthew McConaughey and and send him up to to preserve its orbit because it was going to fall out of the sky at any minute. Immediately, uh, you got to do it yeah. now, 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 now. Yeah. Plus, that also it's I mean it the whole thing it implies that the. Because uh, there's still a robot on board, right? The same robot that was on board that denied Dr. Mann access to the, the Endurance is still on the Endurance. This implies the Endurance has no RCS, what, what we call RCS, Reaction Control System, because otherwise it could just slow itself down, right? Um, which implies that all the thrust that occurs occurs on the lander and is transmitted back to this vehicle via the cantilevered arm from the center of action, from the, the rotational axis out to the perimeter ring. of the vehicle. Yeah, yeah, none of that. None yeah. of that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, not, not, literally none of it. But it just, you couldn't have the scene. They wanted to have a scene. I mean, it is a beautiful scene where you have the view from the Endurance's point of view. So the world and the lander are spinning. Right. And the and the lander reduces its rotational velocity, but it doesn't. The lander is spinning up to match the endurance. And it's a it's a pretty image. It's a very yeah. pretty, pretty image. Just doesn't it make is. any sense. Yeah. And, and it is, you know, there are, you know, our International Space Station, you know, does get orbit raising uh, from mm-hmm. visiting vehicles. Right. So when the space shuttle used to go there, it would use uh, its engines to kind of raise raise the orbit of the International Space Station, I believe Dragon, I think, does the same thing. Um, the uh, the Russian the, engines are so enthusiastic, sometimes they fire even when they don't need to or want to. Sometimes they're they so, cause... They're so, they're so eager to change the orbit. Yeah, sometimes they cause the entire space station to do a 180. Um, why not? Uh, so, yeah, so it, that, that's a thing that can happen, right? And, and it kind of is trans- transferred through that same kind of docking ring. Um sometimes maybe not to the best effect um but you're right that you know the robot like what these robots can and can't do just seems to vary Mm -hmm. from scene to scene um it's Mm -hmm. you know it's this very same scene where uh coop delegates to uh the robot that's on board to like you know operate the docking ring which is Mm -hmm. like an incredibly complex sequence of of things that's going on right he's piloting the craft and the robot is is operating the docking ring uh and yet the one that's on board the station is kind of just sort of like sitting there twiddling its its blocky thumbs the thumbs it doesn't have yeah so now they're back on the spaceship and uh everything happens very very quickly because they're like close to gargantua but again they're not the planet that's close to Gargantua. We we determined that that was Miller's world, but yet they're like falling towards Gargantua now. They've they've left the the second they're not falling in towards uh, man's planet, they're then immediately falling falling in towards Gargantua, which is an yep. interesting. Yep. Makes no sense, but okay, fine. Everything everything is a false sense of urgency in this film. Every mm-hmm. every urgency that occurs in the film is as a result of an artificial uh, effect put on by the director to make that sense of urgency. None of the urgency falls out naturally as a result of the plot. It's all like, oh, and by the way, now we're falling towards Gargantua. It, you know, or, oh, by the way, now we're falling towards the planet, right? It's like we've inserted a thing. It's like when you're playing D&D and the, and the, and the uh, players are getting too complacent and so the DM throws a, you know, eye of the beholder at them or whatever yeah. to get the, to knock them out of their stupor. Um, I guess it would before, um, speaking of, of Gargantua, um, 
I was kind of reading through some of the comments from uh, from Dr. Grinspoon as well as from from Dr. Thorne, um, and because I was trying to figure out a question that that, uh, that Dave Grinspoon also had, which is like, where does the sunlight come from? Right, like these three uh, planets are orbiting a black hole. Okay, so where does the sunlight come from? Uh, and uh-huh. you know, one one of the answers could be that there's uh, this accretion disk, right? So the the black hole is drawing uh-huh. in matter from you know its system uh, as that matter is sped up. Uh, it's it gets hot, so hot things emit light, and as you were mentioning earlier, also things like X rays and uh, various other um, high energy particles, uh, things that you don't want to be anywhere near. Oh, Tim, uh, Tim, 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 Tim. You so don't understand an accretion disk. Um, They explain away the accretion disk, some of the accretion disk stuff. They use the term, uh, and I'm dying to, I I guess I should have looked it up to see whether it's a real thing or not. Uh, They use the term soft singularity, I think is the term that they use. Oh, it's a soft singularity. It's a soft singularity. singularity. And so the accretion, a gentle singularity, that's what they say. So the accretion disk, Tim, is actually like a cleansing waterfall. Oh, sure. And, and, and it's a, it's a, you get a gentle, loving mist of particles that kind of just bounce off your spacecraft. Um, instead of, the relativistic speed hellhole that an actual accretion disk actually is, where everything, you're right, in real life, the accretion disk is incredibly hot, emitting vast amounts of radiation, and everything is atomic or subatomic particles because it's so damned hot. Um, but no, 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 no. In this movie, I guess because it's a gentle uh, uh, singularity. Uh, sure. Yeah, it's a loving yeah. waterfall. He's just yeah. it, it all just washes over his spaceship in just kind of a pleasant... Kind of uh, like one of those uh, white noise generators that you have in your home if you're trying to nice. trying to sleep more easily. That's yeah. what the accretion desk is like in this movie. That's a much that's a much more pleasant uh, description than than what Kip, Kip Thorne uses. He he describes it as it's an anemic uh, accretion disk. Uh, he's he's uh, he's actually anemic. got a book called called the uh, what's it called the science of interstellar, oh, uh, in dear. which he in which he describes that you know at, at at some point in a particular size of a black hole's life you could potentially get into a scenario where you have this this like anemic uh, accretion disk. Um, it's not particularly stable. It might not last last for very long, um, which is maybe not a good thing if you're looking to move an entire civilization there. Um, mm-hmm. But you know. He says the physics kind of sort of works. Um, he said uh, uh, Gargantua's disk is a remnant of what it was in the past. It's in a quiescent state and cooling down. Also, not a thing that you want uh, if you want to move your civilization there. Uh, you, you want a stable, stable light source would be nice. Uh, I'd be curious to know where all those beautiful, super bright visual effects around the black hole come from, if in fact it doesn't have a lot of material going into it. But I mean, it is true that black holes vary in their output as, you know, as the rate at which they're absorbing matter uh, spirals in through the accretion disk, but it's clearly an active thing. It's got this huge bright uh, accretion disk around it. That brightness doesn't come from nowhere, right? It comes from things being hot enough to uh, emit visible light, which means yep. there are thousands of degrees, Calvin. So, 
Uh, okay, at the very so least. And, and traveling at relativistic speeds, right? As you're approaching the surface of the black hole, you are uh, getting you are, you are getting faster and faster into relativistic speeds, which means the things that you encounter, if it's if 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 the difference in your velocity and the thing you encounter is even one percent, but you're traveling at fifty thousand kilometers per second. Uh, you know, that's 5,000 kilometers per second, which is uh, more than fast enough to blow a big old hole through you. So none of it, none of it makes any sense. The accretion yeah. stuff yeah. is all. You can only accept it if, like, the same forces that keep him intact inside the singularity are already operating in, in the accretion disk. Yeah, so it, right at this point, they sort of... Uh, we sort of assume that, that their spacecraft are... Um, Unbreakable, more or less, because um, mm-hmm. you know. So their 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 plan, right, to get to planet number three here, the the one the one good planet that's left, is uh, to 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 do a really close uh, again hotshot piloting thing, flying by uh, Gargantua as close as they possibly can. Uh, they have to eject two of the spacecraft that are attached to Endurance in order to do so because of Newton's third law. Um, which is not really how it works, right? You, okay. you, it's it's not just about ejecting mass; it's about momentum change. So it's the mass times the velocity. If you just eject the mass without a velocity change, then you just have two masses traveling in the same direction at the same time, right? Yeah. You haven't done anything if you just disconnect the mass. Yeah, and when you see them separate, right, that you sort of like you know slip off pretty quickly and into the background, which is, I guess, maybe sort of what they were trying to do. Uh, so, you know, they, they eject uh, spacecraft number one uh, with, with, with poor, poor robot blocks on board. Um, Case, and, I believe its name is. And uh, we're sad about that. Um, or at least, uh, you know, Lady Scientist is sad about that because she's the one who has emotions. Um, right. And then Matthew McConaughey reveals that he has to eject himself as well because Newton's third law. You have um, to leave something behind. But of course, you leave thrust behind. behind. That's the whole thing about thrust, right? Momentum is mass times velocity. And the reason rockets work is they throw mass off board with velocity, right? Which is what you do when you thrust. So when you, when you do a slingshot maneuver and you, and you expel energy at the bottom of a gravitational well, uh, or sorry, when you you expel matter at the bottom of gravitational well, you you do it with your engines. That's how you know. That's how it works. Yeah, but uh, in this case, we're gonna eject Matthew McConaughey. Um, he, uh, they, I think, they sort of missed out on a cool uh, demonstration of relativity here. Um, you know, as as he's separating from endurance, right, and he's falling towards the uh, towards the singularity in in, um, in Gargantua. You know what? What would be happening? I remember. I remember really vividly reading uh, a description of this um, when I was a kid, uh, reading a Stephen Hawking's brief history of time. Right? He's describing like what an astronaut would feel and what would happen to them as they were falling into a black hole, particularly if there was an orbiting spacecraft uh, nearby. Uh, which is that? You know, if, if the if the astronaut were to you know count down from ten to zero, uh, the the time between each call would get longer and longer and longer mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of of you know relativity. Because you're speeding out. And ultimate, and if you you know if 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 they were going to hit zero at the moment they cross the event horizon, um, the spaces between the calls would get so long that that the time between one and zero would be infinite. Right. Um, because right. they reach the speed of light as they as they cross the event horizon, which is which is what an event horizon is, if I remember correctly. Uh, and so I think they they missed out on a cool thing that they could have done, which is you know 
he's, he's talking all, the whole way in. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they could have played that as, you know, his as Anne Hathaway is hearing him over the radio. Right. They could have gotten slower and slower. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe at some point they realized they had stolen from 2001 enough uh, and hearing uh, someone uh, dying by talking very slowly um, was maybe a bridge too far. I mean, it's all magic at this point. As far once he sacrifices himself and she's going to go on to the planet with, you know, planet boyfriend and he's going to go into the black hole. It's all magic from this point on, right? None of it physically makes sense. Why does he eject from the capsule? There's nothing wrong with the capsule. Why does he eject from it? Why is he any safer in a spacesuit in a black hole than he is inside his uh, spacecraft in a black hole? Like, none of it. It's all... You just have to take all of it as, you know, the fifth dimensional beings are in charge, and uh, it's very much like Bowman inside the monolith, right, at this point. Basically, yeah, yeah. I mean, the sequence that he goes through again is a very like two thousand one sort of thing, um, sort of falling through this wormholey type experience, finds himself in a uh, four dimensional bookshelf, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the visual effects were kind of cool. Um, oh the yeah, way beautiful. No, just yeah. like. It's like, how do you represent a you know five-dimensional space on a three-dimensional screen um, on a well, three-dimensional place in a two-dimensional screen? Like, it looked really cool. Very much reminded me of some of the uh, effects in Doctor Strange, uh, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Marvel movie. Some similar technologies. But yeah, it was gorgeous. No question. Uh, so let's see. Uh, so he has a, a chit-chat with uh, his robot friend who's also trapped in there. Uh, and together they figure out... Um, you know, the robot has has figured out how gravity works uh, by observing falling into this uh, singularity. He's got the data. He's got the data, but how do you get it back? How do you get mm-hmm. it back when all you have is Matthew mm-hmm. McConaughey stuck behind a bookshelf? So this this scene, many people have made fun of this scene, right? They've counted how many times he says Murph. He's like Murph, 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 Murph. Uh, make him stay. Don't leave me, Murph. Murph, 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 Murph. Um, you know, people have done a thing where it's just all the Murphys that he says in, the, in this part of it. Um, it goes on for a long time. I mean, the crux of it is uh, it's, it's kind of weirdly put together. But, you know, he did say stay, right? He communicates through the bookshelf because gravity can be can communicate through time. Uh, he does say to stay because after all this, he's inside the bookshelf. He's it, like there's a point where. He really tries to tell Murph not to send him. I don't really understand what he has. A, he has a change of heart, right? Because he's doing this. He says, "Don't leave me, Murph. Make him stay, Murph." He does the word "stay," and then he gets the data from the robot, right? And only then does he start thinking, "How does he communicate this data?" So he has a change of heart, but it's like this whole thing where he's already inside this construct, and he knows that his past self is going to go on this mission, right? He knows that the stay doesn't work. Right, he knows that his past self heard this thing about stay, and yet he keeps trying to do it. Uh, it just doesn't, as a narrative thing, it didn't make any sense. And he's and he's screaming her name, Murph, 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 and the scene just goes on and on and on. It gets more interesting once he has the data and he's trying to figure out how to convey the data. But but this scene has this artificial uh, urgency because back on Earth they make the sun all of a sudden be an a-hole, right? Like he was a good guy who suffered a lot of loss and then 
uh, his sister shows up with her boyfriend, Topher Grace, and uh, the family, Tom's family is sick, and Topher Grace uh, tries to get them to go back to NASA, and Tom clocks him. Yeah, he's and like, it's no, like, we, ain't, we ain't leaving this farm. This is our right, farm. But he punches him. Like, yeah. uh, basically, the first thing he does is, is punch this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes out of nowhere, and... I think it's, I mean, his character, I guess, up until this point, his character was supposed to be a farmer, but he was supposed to be kind of a noble farmer, and he was doing what needed to get done. But he wasn't the kind of guy who was going to, like, kill his family so that they would be on the farm, right? And, yeah, he, and, it's it's this interesting response to, like, right, he had, he had basically, he had two two kids, and one of them died. Died early. Yep. Dust, basically. Blight, uh, nitrogen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and rather than taking that as a lesson in that like maybe this is not a good place to live, uh, and I should take any escape route that I got, uh, he's like, nope, nope, we're gonna dig in, ain't leaving. Yeah, and 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 so what happens is the sister goes and burns some of his crops so that he has to go take care of the crops so that she can go back to the house. But it, none of it. I mean, it's again, it's all just artificial urgency. It, it doesn't make any sense that her brother clocks the guy. And then later, her brother is fine again. Like, she shows him, she yeah. says something that makes him all of a sudden fine again, even though she's just burnt his crops, by the way. Yeah, I kept, yeah, I kept, I kept waiting, right? So there's this, the scene, right? So, like, okay, they figure out how to transmit the data through him, like, transmitting this, like, enormous amount of data uh, through um, Morse code. By moving the second hand of a watch, um, mm-hmm. and so okay, fine, whatever. Uh, a grand unifying theory whatever. that ties uh, quantum mechanics together with general relativity conveyed by Morse code. Okay, yeah. sure. And uh, she sees it on the watch, and she's like, "Oh my gosh, watch." Okay, fine. And she runs outside, and like she's just like shows her brother the watch, and she's like, "Dad figured it out." And he's like, "Well, I guess that's cool then." And carry and, on. Um, yeah. Cool. I guess <laughs> then, he didn't abandon us. Never mind. Not not like, you know, coming back from being like extremely pissed off about having half of his crops burned or whatever, uh, and you're trying to like steal my wife and kid. Uh, right. He's like, oh well, I guess the watch, like that's cool. We're we're good now. Yeah, I didn't know. I mean, cool. All right, the watch the watch changes everything, yeah. and hooray, everything is fine. Yeah, yeah. It's the sort of scene where you would expect him to just like knock it out of her hand and be like, exactly. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. No. And it was just such a transparent. Like, okay, we have to have, we have urgency on the other side. We need to have urgency on the Earth side. So we will manufacture a conflict between this girl and her brother, um, and who, which comes out of nowhere, which doesn't reflect anything that's ever been telegraphed ever before when they were kids or when they were adults. And uh, again, it's just the artificial urgency. He doesn't create urgency organically in this story. He creates it by just saying that you're in an urgent situation now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, and then everything, uh, then all of a sudden he's on a space, then Coop's on a space station. He, uh, yeah, he, <laughs> he wakes up, um, not again, maybe stealing a little bit from 2001, right? He's, he's all of a sudden back in orbit. Um, in this case, around Saturn, uh, whereas Dave Bowman was uh, in orbit around around the Earth, uh, and and we see off in the distance uh, what looks like actually like police lights, like flashy lights, uh, and it, and it turns out it is in fact the Space Rangers, mm-hmm. 
and uh, he wakes up. Uh, it turns out in an O'Neill cylinder, uh, which uh-huh. I thought was actually kind of cool. Uh, so, they nicely conveyed O'Neill cylinder, including mm-hmm. the mirrors at the end of the O'Neill cylinder. Nicely yeah. done. Yeah, which is you know revealed, you know maybe a little bit artificially through uh, a baseball game. Some some kid hits baseball and and it uh, it goes basically straight up and through someone's skylight on the opposite side of the cylinder. So, so Tracy and I talked about this too, because this is another case of Nolan not understanding spatial stuff, because you see the baseball players, and then you see the curve of the... And an O'Neill cylinder is a cylinder designed... Uh, Tom Thomas O'Neill, I think? Gerard. He's a futurist. Gerard Gerard, Gerard. Sorry, Gerard K. O'Neill. In like the 1960s, an idea for a habitable... Uh, uh, space station basically is like 20 kilometers long, a couple kilometers in diameter, and you spin it on its axis. And, uh, but so in this, in this thing, the people are playing baseball and you see the curvature of the O'Neill cylinder and it's clearly like a kilometer in radius, right? It's at some huge distance. But then you look up to where the baseball has just smashed a window and it's like a hundred feet away or 200 feet away. And it's just this really weird effect that like you don't they use cut they they cut images. He cuts from image to image because he doesn't have a sense of space. Like you can't track from one place to another in a Nolan film because none of it makes physical sense. Right? You can't track from one place to another at manned space station on the ammonia planet. You can't track from one place to another on inside the endurance because none of it makes any physical sense to anything else. And it's it's even Tracy who's not uh, you know of an engineering bent was was found that jarring the way that that scene worked. So so you have it. So he's on an O'Neill cylinder, and it's called uh, Cooper Station. And oh, there's yes. this great scene where he's like, oh, you guys named it after me. And they're like, no, <laughs> we named it after Dr. Murphy Cooper. Yes. Uh, yeah, I just, just looked up sort of the, the canonical O'Neill cylinder uh, size, and it's, and it's yeah, it's a eight, eight kilometers in diameter, uh, so five, five miles in oh, diameter. Oh, eight kilometers in diameter. How long? Yeah. Uh, 20? 20 miles, uh, 32 kilometers. 20 miles. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and because you want that big of a diameter mm-hmm. so that as it rotates, you don't get the, that sort of like Coriolis force and, and, and whatever else. Um, as you can also have it rotate much turns. slower yes. uh, to get the same uh, effective uh, uh, sense of gravity. Yep. Um, so, but other than that, it's cool, right? It's, it's you know, yeah. like you said, there's there's a mirror at one end that picks up you know light from the distant sun. I, I'd say maybe it's Saturn. The sun's maybe not bright enough, um, but maybe they got some cool lenses and stuff to make it brighter inside. Um, because Saturn is the place where you want to be if you want to go to this wormhole through the through the wormhole. Yeah, yeah. Although I don't uh, think anybody's actually gone through the wormhole because nobody's gone to. Uh, Anne Hathaway's boyfriend planet. Nobody's gone back. Right? Yeah. yeah. They just like. It's been a hundred years. Out. It's yeah. been a hundred years. At some point, Dr. Uh, Murphy Cooper figured out gravity with the information she got from her dad on the watch. And now people can travel the solar system in these huge spaceships. But nobody's, nobody's evidently gone through the wormhole to the most viable planets uh, yeah. to do any exploring. Or even to just like check on check on Anne Hathaway and like see Anything. how she's doing see if she right. needs more snacks or something mm-hmm. 
and so yeah, Murph is now played in, in old age uh, by Ellen Burstyn, uh, amazing amazing actor, um, all kinds of stuff, um, and uh, so he gets to go and see her, have a nice little little reuniting moment with her, uh, and then uh, again because nobody has gone back to check on Anne Hathaway, um, he, uh, he he and his uh, his plucky robot buddy uh, go off and Tars. Like, Tars, uh, they go off and they steal an X-wing or uh, or, or whatever um, to right. go and, and and visit her. Because the spacecrafts haven't changed in a hundred years, so he can just take one, and he's going to go through the uh, intergalactic wormhole, just yeah. kind of on a joyride, yeah. like as one as one does. Yeah. But yeah. but before that, there is a beautiful scene. So he goes to meet with his daughter, and I have to say, so the scene, and she's uh, old and she's going to die soon, and she says, no parent should watch their child die. I have to say that, you know, this movie came out seven years ago and seven years ago, uh, my kids were 16 and 13. And, uh, you know, my mom, my mom was gone, but, uh, everybody else, uh, health wise were in pretty good shape. Well, now my kids are 23 and 20. And, uh, one of Tracy's parents is got some health, some pretty serious health concerns. And this scene is, it was much more, uh, gripping for me as a as a parent because you get to a point where like you do have to think like you know when my mom got sick with cancer the first thing she said was no parent wants to outlive their kid right mm-hmm. um, and that's how you know that's how it's supposed to work that's how you kind of hope it works like I I would never want to outlive my kids just wouldn't want to do it so that scene I found much more affecting now than it was seven years ago. Seven years ago, it was just sort of an oddity and an interesting, like, okay, sure, it makes sense. And he's got to go back to Anne Hathaway, so it's a plot element. But now I found it. It was the most moving scene in the film for me. So. Yeah. Yeah. Because my kids are older, and I, because, you know, maybe, I, you know, I don't know how life will work for them. Mortality. We all have, I now feel seven years older. I feel the, the, you know, the sense of mortality that lies heavy on all of us uh, much more heavily than, than I did when I was uh, than I did seven years ago, including for my kids. So, and 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 here we are without uh, giant Ziploc bags to to go and hang out in to uh, to preserve a few extra years of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it goes back to Anne Hathaway, and we don't actually get to see them together. We get to hear uh, a voiceover from Ellen Bernstein uh, talking about Anne Hathaway and her boy. Her uh, her boyfriend is dead. There's a there's a rock iron uh where his where his uh, ostensibly his grave must be and she set up her her spate you know her her planet with you know the uh the sperm sickles are defrosting and everything and so she's just gonna she's gonna she's she's basically been a one person implementation of plan b uh for humanity and again it's been a hundred years and nobody's gone to see her and check if she's okay or, although actually yeah. she's uh I guess she just got there, though. Just, yeah, because yeah. R- right, relativity again. Yeah, um, yeah. So. But she should have gotten to that planet and found there was already thousands of human beings there because they've gone through using Dr. Murphy Cooper's uh, drive, right? Well, one would hope, yeah. But but no, nobody else has gone through because no one's, uh, I don't know, as good a pilot as Coop? I don't know. Um, so, so there we go. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, and we never we never go back to Earth, right? To see, right. you know, right? You know, we, we we get you know maybe a little bit of kind of 
maudlin exposition uh, from Matthew McConaughey as he sits on the porch of his new old farmhouse on the O'Neill Cylinder and says, so why did we recreate what we had on Earth when we could be doing cooler stuff? Um, it wasn't clear to me that, like, what was going on on Earth, if everyone just, like, abandoned it and moved to O'Neill Cylinders, uh, or if they're able to, you know, grow some crops in space and take them back and repopulate or whatever. Um, no, nope. uh, left, left unresolved. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which seems like, I don't know, it's kind of what the whole movie's sort of supposed to be about. Um, yeah, but, but I, mean, but I, think, I think it was supposed to be about humanity refinding its uh, sense of exploration and, you know, conquering the universe kind of a thing, right? We had grown, we had grown tired and and uh, fatigued and all that, and we we refound our mojo. Basically, we got oh, a, yeah. a mojo, much like in that one uh, Austin Powers movie where he, uh, you know, has to somebody tries to remove his mojo and he has to keep his mojo. We refound our mojo. Yeah, well, that's that's really all that we need. Um, yeah, I, I I could probably go on for a while about the you know the particular hazards of, of just moving the entire population of of the Earth into uh, space stations, even even two hundred years in the future, um, to be able to have you know to maintain them and and keep them from you know spraying leaks and and uh, you know still operating life support systems and whatever else. Uh, but in the interest of at least keeping this podcast episode a little bit shorter than the movie itself. Yeah. Every, every podcast of ours gets longer. Um, but, you know, as a fraction of the movie length, this one's probably no worse than uh, Arrival. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I had thought, I did think about in, in regards to that, like in the future, most people will not travel, even if we are an interstellar civilization it will take vast amounts of time and energy to get between star systems and you know i I think that serenity probably comes closest like of any of the movies that involve interstellar travel and how they depict it like we'll get you will get cedar ships going to some other planet some other star systems if we're very lucky you know the millennium there won't be millennium falcons uh crisscrossing the galaxy uh you know bringing bootleg you know supplies fresh oranges and stuff from one star star system to another right it'll be uh it'll be very small packages that will then basically rebuild civilizations but large large fractions of humanity won't ever be on the move uh in in galactic distances it's just too it's just too far and takes too much energy. Plus, you know, Arthur C. Clarke has a thing on futurism. He had a book in the 1960s on futurism that talks about, and I, we may have talked about this before, and if we have, I apologize. But, you know, sending information is always so much easier than sending matter. And so, you know, as civilization has continued to advance and our ability to convey information has grown, you know, you have more and more of a drive towards communicating information instead of material because it's so much easier. So, you know, interstellar things, there might be a lot of communication going back and forth, right? The equivalent of Netflix is the crown, you know, might be beamed from Earth to Alpha Centauri. But how many people actually go from Earth to Alpha Centauri is a different, is an entirely different thing. Indeed, yeah, and so so much easier to send information than to send like matter. Right. Well, shall we uh, shall we uh, put a bow around this? I think, um, yeah. Before we before we all get get trapped behind bookcases of our own, uh, we should probably give this a uh, give this a score, shall we? All right. Well, <laughs> science. 
so okay, I, I, on on the face of it, uh, I, I had a, a number of WTF moments, um, but upon doing a little bit more research and, and seeing how much work Kip Thorne actually put into the sort of relativity pieces of it and whatever else, um, I, I, I have to at least give it some points uh, for science, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I'm going to say that you know maybe half of the physics is good and, and, and maybe none of the biology. So I'm going to say uh, 60% science. In seeing this film after Ad Astra, <laughs> um, I'm more charitable towards the science than I was the first time I saw it. And I think it's, it's actually, it came out after or before Gravity as well, right? Another movie that purports to be very scientifically accurate that has its challenges, right? When did Gravity come out? Uh, Gravity came out uh, 2013, actually. So it came out just before. So, uh, But I am more charitable towards it after seeing Ad Astra and seeing how comprehensively Ad Astra got the facts wrong while trying to be scientifically accurate. And I think that in talking through the movie, I think my concerns are more around the spatial murkiness of the of this film and of the set pieces, not necessarily the science itself. There's just a lot of head scratchers because Nolan doesn't think visually, right? I keep comparing him to... Um, I keep comparing him to... No, I was thinking of... uh, (laughs) No, uh, Ridley Scott... uh, James Cameron. Cameron. James Cameron, yeah. So I keep comparing him to Scott and Cameron, who are just such... uh, They always have such a strong sense of space in their films. And so I have to separate that out. So uh, the punchline is, I will say... I'm also at 60%, actually. Um, Because what that gives us, that gives us a net 60%. And if I feel like if Ad Astra is 30%, then this movie is 60% for sure. Now, how does it work as a work of fiction? This is always the hardest one, I think. Right, It's about how the story is told. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we're talking a little bit about how just the, like, the storytelling itself can be a little all over the place. Um... I think the 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 basic premise of you know trying to escape a dying earth kind of sorta maybe um, I think wasn't set up as well as it could have been. Um, the characters themselves are not super deep, uh, so uh, and and you know a lot of the a lot of the conflict and urgency in in the storytelling seems to be kind of like made up on the spot um mm-hmm. so all of all of that put together you know it was still interesting uh i so i don't know what's like a barely passing grade maybe like a 75 75 percent 75 percent i feel like this movie had two parts that had very different effectiveness which is i feel like hit the stuff with his relationship with his kids was was well done but I think his relationship with Anne Hathaway and his other fellow explorers and the folks at NASA, all that was very poorly done. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give it a little bit lower score. I'm going to give it a 70% for a net 73. 
uh, I just, I really feel like it's a, it's like a 85% for the family stuff and like a 55% for the, <laughs> for the rest of it. The rest of it is just like a script written by a computer. All right. The film part of it. Film Cinematography uh, as a work of film as opposed to a short story or comic book or whatever. So again, it's kind of this uh, similar to how you're describing the story. It, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, we get a combination of, of some just you know beautiful beautiful film, right? You know the, the various uh, event horizons. Um, you know the fact that that you know, making the visual effects actually advanced the state of physics uh, is like something that not a lot of films get to claim. Uh, that's certainly worth something. Uh, the, the shots of, of Saturn, uh, certainly beautiful. Um, I do have to take away some points for continually going back to that exact same shot of looking over the wing of, of a spacecraft. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, like pick another shot. It's like, there's so many. There's so many different ways you can film a spacecraft. Sure. Um, with and, CG uh, now, you can film from yeah anywhere, third person, first person, yeah, yeah, and 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 finally, just the like the the Ken Burns stuff, like it just I don't know, it didn't fit for me uh, at all. It felt like a completely different movie. Uh, so so all those things combined, uh, I still like you know I still wanted to go and see this in an IMAX uh, mm-hmm. just for the the cool the cool visuals, um, and then again, there's the continuity stuff. Uh, so I, uh, overall, I think I'm going to give it a 75 there as well. 75. All right. I'm, I'm a little different on this. I think it was just so beautiful. Like, I, I think that the things that bothered me that affected my view of the science and the fiction scores, which is the way Nolan basically bent the story to set up the visuals he wanted to set up, really worked. <laughs> so uh, I'm actually, uh, it, for me, it's like 90%. Like there's only a few movies that I would think that I would say are prettier films to see up on screen. It, you know, uh, you know, Blade Runner, uh, Solaris has its moments, you know, 2001. There's, there's a few movies, but it's, it's, it's really up there um, visually. And it certainly makes the most of the the film medium. The the stuff with the spacecraft, I totally understand your point, uh, but at the same time, it didn't bother me at the time. So, uh, you're at 75, I'm at 90, uh, the difference would be 83. So, we are at 60, 73, and 83%, which is seems like uh, good scores on that. For our next podcast, so it has not been long enough for us to have gotten feedback yet. Uh, or very much feedback on our 1950s options. Do you have a film that you think we should do for our next podcast? Uh, well, we had been discussing a little bit uh, about a uh, a certain uh, Denis Villeneuve uh, film uh, that just recently Absolutely. came out. Absolutely. <laughs> Returning to the uh, Timothy Chalumet well, if it, uh, as it were. Yes. We're, uh, that's that's an interesting person to, to come up in multiple films of ours, but uh, why not? Why uh, not, as, indeed. As a, as a Timothy myself, but without... without uh, the interesting spelling um i can get behind that all right let's do it let's dive into the densest text of any science fiction book uh certainly any hit science fiction book ever right translated to film uh the first half 
of Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Uh, I am, I would love to discuss this film. I think that there's a lot, there's a lot for us to cover. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot of film. It comes from a lot of book. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Monty Hall Effect. People ask us, how much does dust weigh? Seriously, I asked this question as a 10-year-old, and it really stumped my stepfather. Uh, However, it's easily solved if you remember that most dust, like Soylent Green, is just people. Our musical themes, as always, were written and performed by our good friend Guy Ellis. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions about the podcast, you can contact us or find out more about us at the Monty Hall Effect podcast page on Buzzsprout. Thanks, and keep watching science fiction films. Thank you.